0: Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on Toe. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a cast sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, Toe listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com theories.
1: Let me say quite genuinely that you do, your, your questions are some of the best Um they, they target very important areas. And no, I think you're, you know, from that point of view, you're one of the best interviewers that I've, I've come across. So thank you. I could talk to you all day. I, I wish we had time. Um. Ian
0: McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, a writer, and a former Oxford scholar who came into prominence after the publication of his book, Master and its Emissary, which is a fantastic book, by the way. Links are in the description. This book is about the fundamental realities we experience that are different, complementary, yet incompatible, and rooted in the bihemispheric structures of the brain. Each time I think I can't top a podcast, somehow the guest surprises me, and Ian is no different. We touch on the problem of the modern world with its overemphasis on rational mechanistic explanations while it simultaneously eschews meaning. We also talk about consciousness And how can one be a moral person if there are no objective truths? Are there objective truths? We also talk about schizophrenia, and I get fairly personal in this interview, and the reason is that I am driven by the screenwriting adage which says, the more general the pain, the less personal it is, and the more personal the pain, the more general it is. This means that ultimately people will relate more to someone speaking their experience earnestly and candidly, rather than generic platitudes. Unfortunately, there were connectivity issues with Zoom, as usual, and some of his points were crushed, omitted, or overly compressed. There's very little that can be done about this because, for whatever reason, the backup recording on Ian's end stopped. If you would like to contribute to watching or listening to more conversations like this, then please consider visiting patreon.com slash Every dollar helps not only financially, but motivationally. Thank you so much. Enjoy. I've heard about your book. I don't remember exactly where I heard about your book, Master and Its Emissary. And I believe I even came to watch the film version of it. Maybe one of the first screenings of it where you had some laptop trouble and you were Skyping okay. live to us. The movie was was okay, but the book, the movie doesn't sell the book. The book is no. a fascinating, fascinating, It's a, it's a it's a frightening book. At least I find it to be so. I find it to be unnerving and subversive. We can talk about why I find it to me, that later. This channel is about theories of everything, and usually that involves talking to physicists, string theories included, and so on and so. on. But mm. the way that I conceptualize a theory of everything is there's no English word for it. There's a German word. It's called Weltanschauung. That mm. means a framework through which to interpret the world. It's like yeah. it's more than a worldview. A worldview would be not selling it properly. And I believe you have a. Mm. I believe you have a Weltanschauung. And it's yes. <laughs> it's, well, <laughs> I don't know how you did and it. And I
1: also, I also have a Gesamt <laughs> What's that? <laughs> a, a theory of everything. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. Well, yes. this is a great time to give the audience a quick recapitulation of your main thesis of the master and its emissary.
1: Yes. Um, effectively, People think that they noticed there was a difference between the two halves of the brain in the late 19th century. And then this took a step forward in the 1960s and 70s with the first split brain operations in uh, California, in which people's brains were surgically severed in the middle. The connection between the two halves of the brain, the corpus callosum, was severed. And so it was possible to interrogate and to investigate one hemisphere at a time. And a number of theories arose out of that. And most of them are now considered wrong and uh, correctly, they're considered wrong. But the problem that we have two rather different hemispheres doesn't go away. Why, if the brain gets its power from making connections, should there be an enormous divide right down the middle of it? And this is not just for humans, this is for all animals that we've studied. They all have an asymmetrical neuronal network with some kind of division between the parts. So I set about investigating that and it occurred to me that what was the difference was the need to pay attention to the world in two different ways at once. And that's a very important point, because how we attend to things changes what we find. Not just whether we're aware of them, but the quality of the awareness changes what it is that we find there. And it also changes us who are doing the finding. So attention is a moral act, it creates or destroys. different ways. They will bring into being two different versions, if you like, of reality. And I then started investigating, 20, 30 years, what these differences were. And effectively, they aren't what people used to say. They used to think it was, you know, as you think of a machine, well, what does it do? Well, the left hemisphere does language and reason and the right hemisphere does pictures and emotion. But this is not right since all these things are looked after by both hemispheres. But we should have asked a different question. If we had been thinking in terms of a, a living being instead of a machine, instead of asking what does it do as though it's just a functional utility, we'd ask in what manner, how does it do it, and to what sort of end? Because things evolve in uh, in, in living beings in ways that answer to existential needs to be able to carry on being. So. And I think there is an answer to that that we do need in order to um, be able to pay attention to little details of things, which is mainly things that we're going to use like food or, you know, if you're a bird picking up a twig to build a nest or catching your prey, you need a certain kind of attention that doesn't really need to know the whole picture. It just needs to know the little tiny bit in the middle of the picture, which is very highly focused on. But if it's only paying that kind of attention, it will not survive because it will become prey to another creature very quickly. So it needs to have a different attention, which is a broad, open attention and a sustained attention. Now, that that's a very, you know, a very brief remark, but it, uh, on it hangs just about everything. Because, because these two ways of attending bring about two different Weltanschauungen. They bring about two different ways of looking at the world. In one, there are things that we can use and they're essentially fragmented one from another. We can pick them up, they're isolated. We put them together to make things that we want and it has no meaning and it's not really connected to us but we can manipulate it. And that's the left hemisphere's picture. The left hemisphere enables us to manipulate the world and in survival terms, that's obviously very important. But it doesn't help us understand the world at all the right hemisphere meantime which doesn't usually have access to speech it contributes to language but it for most of us doesn't actually speak is seeing a completely different world one in which things are never entirely isolated or atomistic they're interconnected they are In fact, everything is connected to everything else, ultimately. And it's a a field that is changing all the time. It's not just made up of things that sit in the field. It's the whole field of things that we see and perceive, and we relate to it. We don't sort of see it as a thing and then relate to it. It comes into being through our relationship with it. So that built into it is the idea of relation. And so this is a very, very different world. And it, it sees things as special, unique, that's, that's a thing we might come back to because people might say, but surely if they're unique, then what's this about them being all interconnected? But it seems to me the whole business is to be able to maintain together uniqueness and individuation with togetherness without collapsing into fragmentation and atomism. So it sees a world made up of unique individuals that, that are constantly changing. It sees all the stuff that's implicit. Left hemisphere understand, understand, only understands the most explicit stuff. This is the world that we live in every day. Nowadays, it's, nobody picks up the messages. And if you do, they become something quite different. Try explaining a joke. Try explaining a poem. Try explaining a piece of music. You can't because it is an experience in which all the important stuff is implicit. And so, of course, is the whole realm of what we seem to have completely abandoned, the idea of there being a sacred world, a a divine element in the cosmos. These things don't make sense to the left hemisphere. It seems obviously a mistake, but (laughs) that's because it, it hasn't seen so much of the picture. Anyway, I'll leave it there, and you can ask me some questions.
0: You mentioned that the right hemisphere is involved in understanding and understanding yep. meaning. Okay,
1: yep. what does meaning mean? <laughs> well, yes, a very good question. There are any word you like, the left hemisphere has one idea of it and the right hemisphere, a different one. So to the left hemisphere, meaning is something that is, as you might expect, put together from bits. And it could be something we create by, you know, words are tokens, they're put together by systematic uh, syntax, and they turn into a meaning that a computer might be able to find out of a combination of a dictionary and a, a book of grammar rules. But meaning is not that. When I say uh, that there is meaning in certain experiences, like the you know my my wife means everything to me, or this piece of music means so much. Or, you know, just being able to walk in wilderness is so important and brings meaning to things. Now, what I want to stress is that nowadays when people um, allow that there could be meaning coming from certain experiences, they see that as an invention of ours. So we do this and we think, okay, now we've added some meaning. But that's not the image. That's the left hemisphere image of something that is added to something else mechanically. What I'm saying is we are, in certain experiences, made to be more receptive, more aware of something that is there to be brought into being through the commerce between ourselves, our own consciousness, and whatever it is that we're conscious of. So it's a relational thing. Absolutely at its core is relation and at its core is consciousness. So in this way, I found that uh, you're a physicist, that surprisingly, a lot of physicists have written to me since The Master and His Emissary was published, saying this is very important and interesting from our point of view. And in the book that I've just finished and want to publish in the next few months called The Matter with Things, I take three ways of looking at the world. One is neuro science, one is philosophy, and the third is physics. And I show that quite coherently, by pursuing each of these paths, we can come to a vision, a Weltanschauung, a picture of the world, which is very, very different from the one that we're taught, uh, and that which the popular media and the, the, the vox pop of sort of scientists who do too much talking and not enough thinking, as it would suggest
0: something that impresses me to an extreme amount about your book, at least the, I've only, I've only read the master and its emissary in that one. It's quite a tome and you see someone, you don't just see them compile chapters together. You see them work through their life in these pages. And I'm wondering, okay, how did you go about doing this? Because it seems like to me, there's a plethora of data. At first you have to just accumulate and dispassionately view so that you don't Bias it beforehand with your own worldview, and then you had to cohere somehow what you saw into a unified message. How long was the researching process, and then how long from once you started, did you find enough of a through line that you're like, I can legitimately start writing instead of just researching?
1: Yes, well, it's easy to say about the gathering of the data that took about 20 years, um, but really, the the core of the idea was that I felt already that there were two kinds of ways we could think about the world, two kinds of awareness of it, that we we both, we needed both and we used both. And as always, it's not either that you just collect data and then look at it and bing, something happens, nor is it that uh, you have an idea and you collect the data just to support it. It's, like everything, it's a kind of an encounter, a rapprochement, a coming together of two things that sense each other's existence, as two loving people uh, understand, come to understand one another. And as indeed we understand the sacred and the divine, it's a coming together of something that speaks to us and we speak to it. And if you don't speak to it, you won't hear anything back from it. So... Most people think that science is made out of just doing hundreds and thousands of tests uh, and then following an entirely logical path. But in fact, a lot of great scientists have pointed out that what happens is you have intuitions of a shape of something that is, you know, you can't put your finger on it, but you know there's something here. And you start to look at the data and you find that some of the data fit with it, but some of the data don't. And that's really important and interesting because then you say, okay, I was thinking of it like this. Now I see I need to accommodate this other thing. So for 20 years or 25 years, this is what I did. I saw things and I changed what I thought. It evolved as all things evolve. The whole cosmos evolves. (laughs) Evolution isn't just something that Darwin spotted in animals. Evolution is being. Being is becoming, and this is a cosmos that is becoming, not one that is just static and being. So that process of creation was like all processes of creation. The sensing of something that at the moment you can't put your finger on. Like a a painter doesn't know exactly where all the bits in the painting are going to go when he or she starts it. The poet doesn't know exactly, but he has certain, the shape of a few lines some images, and then it starts to grow from that. So science is not different or opposite uh, to uh, different from or opposite to um, the creative arts. It is in fact very similar to the creative arts.:
0: Is there a reason why God is associated with becoming rather than being or rather than a combination of both becoming and being?
1: <laughs> well, there are as many ideas of God as there are you know traditions in the world and probably as many as there are people. So ideas about God can be very different. But I have noted a very interesting strain in the mythologies and anthropologies of peoples around the world, from China and India, from um from the circumpolar regions, from the Native American peoples and so on, that speak of a world that is becoming, not just made, but is constantly coming into being. And I think that ultimately, you can bring together the idea of a God that is eternally and a God that is coming into being. But if I had to put my money on one or the other, it would be the coming into being. It seems to me that that is utterly primary. And interestingly, people like Pauli and Heisenberg and, and uh, uh, Schrodinger and so forth in the 20th century thought similarly that becoming was more important than being. David Bohm said that as well. And I think Niels Bohr.
0: Okay, this reminds me of another line from your book. And it could be you said the mind or the brain. I don't, regar- I don't remember which one which we can talk about what's the difference between the mind and the brain. But regardless, (laughs) you said either the mind or the brain. It's not correct to think of it as that the brain slash mind is grappling with the world, but instead it's bringing the world about. Okay, now to some, that conflates the objective world with the phenomenological one. So I'm wondering, can you explain what you mean when you say it brings the world about?
1: Well, I may not be able to explain it very well in language, because I think our language is not very well suited to describing reality. It's very well suited to describing everyday things like getting lunch and uh, building a wall. But when it comes to actually understanding what we're dealing with, we don't necessarily have the words for it. And, you know, Bohr himself said, there is no way we can talk about physics eventually, except in the language of poetry. And he said the same thing is true of Um, philosophy and and of the talking about the divine or whatever it is. So yes, uh, uh, what I've struggled with very much is not collapsing into one or other of two major errors of our age. One is to say, quite simply, it's all made up by us. So it's like we're sitting in a little um, cinema inside our heads you know, mm-hmm. sitting on the sofa little homunculus watching the scene but we have no contact with the world of anything else out there and the other is that you know just the world is out there and it's just a matter of going out measuring it photographing it and you've got it so you know in one case you've got very simplistic materialism and in the other you've got very simplistic idealism and i don't think that either of these positions uh, gets us very far I think the important thing is to see these bridges because as I say, everything is actually connected and it's through the connection that they come into being. So let me say that again, because it's something that again, as a physicist, you will understand. You probably know David Mermin, the physicist. He says, relations are prior to relata. Now I was delighted when I heard that because I have been working on that basis for most of my adult life. And that sounds nonsense to most people. How can relations exist before there are things that relate? But actually, the things only become what they are in the process of the relationship. Indeed, we only are what we are as human beings in the process of the many relationships we have with other people and with the world at large. And there's an an image in the Vedic tradition, which I like very much, of Indra's net. And Indra's net is a cosmic... Uh, net that covers the whole world. And in it, at every place where the threads cross, there is a little jewel. And in this jewel, are reflected all the other jewels and the whole of the net. So it's like a hologram in a way. But what is fabulous about it is that they point out that the threads, the connections, exist before any of the points that make a net. The things that make it a net are the crossings. That's what we see. But they just stand forward after uh, the relations have done what they are. So I, I think this is a good image, because I think we tend to focus on certain things that stand forward to us in the world immediately and neglect the background out of which they emerge and from which they're never separate. And this is a very basic neuropsychological distinction between the left and right hemisphere, which you can demonstrate in the lab any day, the left hemisphere sees a single thing of interest that is foregrounded Mm
0: -hmm. and it
1: ignores the rest, whereas the right hemisphere sees the whole scene with whatever it is embedded in it.
0: Now, this reminds me of in one of your talks you were talking about, it was an offhand comment. You said that existence is predicated on resistance. And so what I'm wondering is, is this resistance akin to a relation?
1: Yes but it's not the same thing. But without some degree of resistance, without some degree of opposition, nothing comes into being. Nothing can do anything. I mean, in a very simple way, motion is only made possible because of friction, which is the thing that itself brings motion to a standstill. So, I mean, I know that's a folk sort of idea, but I think it's helpful that actually what comes into being is shaped, it's not just formless, there are forms that shape what comes into being, and we, our minds, partake of those, and of course, any form, any shape, is already a denial of something else, because if it didn't deny or negate anything, it would be just a formless chaos, a bag of nothing, because it would be everything, and everything would be nothing, because there would be no differentiation of anything from anything else. Nothing would exist, right? To or everything limit, would. You exist. have to exclude. You have to. You have to exclude. You have to limit, and that is the process of resistance. And you know there are lots of ways in which you can think of this, but there's one that I like particularly if we're going to talk about consciousness, uh, because I believe that our consciousness your consciousness, my consciousness, is not entirely separate from other consciousnesses, uh, but for the while it is shaped uh, by whatever form it is that our consciousness is instantiated in. And William James, who I think is one of the towering intellects of the last couple of hundred years, said about this, that it is like the breath passing over his vocal cords that if there were no vocal cords, the breath would say nothing. It would mean nothing. But because there are vocal cords that restrict Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. it becomes the voice that is him. So I think, you know, we can, you can allow that to, to germinate in your imagination. But I think the point is that things are not isolated by resistance, but actually strengthened by and come into being by resistance. Let me just mention another very interesting small insight. You know, there are these, I forget what they're called, but these eco-domes in which plants, some of them are very large. Plants are grown in a protected environment under glass. Biosphere? Some of them are biospheres. That's it. Thank you. Um, And people were puzzled to begin with that, Trees in these biospheres kept falling over before they had any maturity. And it turned out that trees, in order to grow properly, need wind. They need wind to blow them and challenge them. And they they produce a core of strength in the wood and in their roots, which enables them to thrive. (laughs) There we are. It's just another image of the same thing.
0: Let's talk about the title of your book, The Master and Its Emissary, which I believe is derived from the Nietzschean story. In the Nietzschean story, the emissary is contemptuous of the master. Now, that has me wondering, does the left hemisphere have some emotional reason that it thinks that it is primal or that it has an emotional reason to usurp the right brain? Because people normally associate emotion with the right and the left is just calculating.
1: Well, it's interesting because all those things that people used to say that they're just, you know, emotions in one hemisphere, is entirely wrong. As I say, what is different is the way. So they each have emotions. They just have different ways of relating to the world. And interestingly, the emotion that most lateralizes is anger, and it lateralizes to the left hemisphere, not to the right. It's tempting... um, And not perhaps entirely wrong, since after all, the brain is part of a person, to think of these two hemispheres as having personalities of a kind. Um, I mean, of course, one immediately invites the post that one's anthropomorphizing a a computer or something. But, of course, one's easily sort of skewing the picture by thinking of the brain as a computer, because it's obviously part of a living person as well. Anyway... um, to cut a long story short, yes, uh, when when you isolate one hemisphere at a time, the left hemisphere is more confident, even when it's entirely wrong, and tends to increase its con- sense of conviction when it's presented with data that suggests that it might be wrong. Whereas the right hemisphere t- tends to be more, um, more open to, well, it might be something different. Exceptions. Ramachandran, you know, very well-known neuroscientist, says um, that he calls it the the devil's advocate, the right hemisphere, because, well, the left hemisphere is jumping to conclusions, which it does very quickly. The right hemisphere is going, yes, but on the one hand and on the other. And, you know, another element that we miss very much in today's culture is that ability to nuance positions opinions and see this good and bad in many things that more and more of something you think is good is not necessarily good and so forth but to come back to the hemispheres it's also true that the left hemisphere sees less I mean it literally sees less uh, in the sense of it attends to less and therefore takes in less of the world and when you see or, or, or understand less you think you know it all There's uh, uh, a phenomenon in psychology called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which basically is that when people are very bright, they think they don't know very much, but when they're stupid, they think they know everything. And so it's the people who are um, least intelligent, who are most dogmatic (laughs) about their views. And I think that you could say that the left hemisphere suffers from not really understanding jumping to conclusions and tending to be rather impatient and angry um so yes i think you could you could say that about them and what what i've been amazed by is in how many cultures there is a story like the master and his emissary of two brothers or an emperor and his general or whatever it is these two powers and Mm -hmm. one of them is clearly sort of superintendent of the other, but the the other thinks that it should be the master, even though it doesn't really understand what it's doing. And it tries to resist and even to try to destroy that force. Now that that story exists in Iroquois legends. It exists in Chinese eighth century literature. You know, it's, it's there all around the world. It's there in Inuit mythology. What is this that we're seeing? I think it is an understanding that there is a part of us that is somehow unwilling to accept um, that it knows very little. And if only more people... Einstein actually said in a a letter to the Queen of Belgium, he said, if more people understood how very little we know, the world would be a much nicer place to live in.
0: Speaking of stories, I'm reminded of one by Hildegard de Bingen. It's one of my favorite quotes. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but it goes something like this. And pride germinated in the first angel as he could no longer comprehend the source of his own light. And so he spoke to himself, I want to be master and want none above me. And that one is powerful. I think about that often. Mm. Because in one, so the first angel, Satan. And then two, through his own radiance, he couldn't comprehend the source of his own light. And then three, and so he spoke to himself. And so he spoke to himself. And that to me is, there's something about being overly self-conscious and and just simply speaking to yourself and not talking to others that breeds, well, it it reinforces arrogance, but it also wants you, there's there's something evil about it.
1: Yes. I'm interested that you use that word. Most people these days are frightened of using it. Having spent a long time as a psychiatrist, I've certainly seen sickness. And I've seen unhappiness, but I have also at times seen evil. Something that is not fueled by any need or anything except the desire to destroy and to hurt. And I think that does exist in all cultures, people have thought that it did. And that it's probably not just confined to us. So, I mean, the absolute Locus Classicus in the West is Milton's Paradise Lost, which is whose theme is entirely this. Because of course it was Lucifer, the light bringer, as the name means, who became the chief of the of the devils. And in that sense, he was exactly like the emissary to the master, because in the story of that, the reason the master appoints the emissary is that he's such a good emissary. (laughs) The trouble is he's not a very good master. And this, this unequal dynamic is very important. And I think it's very difficult for people to understand these days because we'd like to think in a rather left-hemisphere way that things should be just symmetrical, that if there's A and B, they should be just symmetrical. But they may not be. One of them may be much more important and creative than the other. So I think these drives, if you like, that are in things are, are different, not necessarily easily reconciled. Um, And this has nothing to do with a particularly religious point of view. I'm sorry to say that I don't really, I mean, I certainly honor religions and spiritual traditions, but I I don't myself feel that I have any particular connection to, to the divine. But I do, I would hate to lose the sense that there is something beyond the material that is very important and powerful and beautiful in this world.
0: Part of why your book is so fascinating is there are sentences embedded within paragraphs, which are already far-reaching implications. So there's a, a set of three sentences. I don't recall where. Somewhere chapter seven, chapter eight. I wish I'd written them down, but I just wrote down a note. What you've done in these three sentences is connect nihilism, boredism, sorry, boredom, the platonic realm of timelessness. And then to me, that also connects Eastern mysticism and then the idea of the present moment. As for the exact connection, the relations between those, I'm still cogitating, I'm still trying to understand, but you said that in an almost an offhand, with an offhand remark, and I was wondering, I don't know if you realize the profundity of those statements.
1: (laughs) I don't remember, actually, the words, but I could have said something like that, definitely, definitely. I, I know I say, which I think believe is correct, that the concept of boredom and the word for boredom arose in the 18th century when we first began to feel that we really had control of everything and that the whole of life and the world around us was under human uh, control. We could have it the way we wanted it. And it was then that people started to feel the sense of emptiness of, as you say, the beginnings of nihilism Um, and so on. So I do think it's very interesting. And in the the book that I've said an awful lot more about all this in the the book I've just written called The Matter with Things. Um, And the last part of the book, I look at the building blocks of the cosmos. I mean, a daring thing, or perhaps a stupid thing for somebody to do, unless they, they think they they somehow have an insight into, into physics, which I, 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 I rely very much on colleagues and on guidance from physicists, but to talk about time and space. And I think these things are very, very important. And one of the things that people believe in the real world, a lot of people who have a spiritual take think, really, time is an illusion. Really, time is just a mistake. It doesn't really exist, but I, with Lee Smolin, who I very much admire, um, who's I'm going written- I'm gonna
0: be interviewing Lee.
1: Oh, well, I, for what it's worth, I, I'm I'm an acolyte. I think he's he's very, very interesting. And I quote him a lot in, in my new book, but with him, I think I'm right in saying, I consider that you know, time is absolutely primary, ontologically speaking. And there is a saying of Dogen, the Chinese sage, that even God cannot uh, exist without time. Now, you can, I mean, that would be a fascinating conversation all on its own. But there is such a thing as time moving and developing, and at the same time, not running away, an image I quite like is the idea of being in a stream. And if you move with the stream, you don't stop the stream moving, but as far as you are concerned, the world is permanently there with you because you are moving with that stream. It's only if you're standing on the bank impatiently with a clipboard and a stopwatch watching things pass from outside that time appears to have this erosive quality. Um, instead, it's part of the experience of becoming, which is what it is to be a human becoming.
0: Speaking of streams and time, Heraclitus' river, this is mentioned quite a bit in your book. And I have a speculative question here. It's, okay, I'm just going to read it because I don't have it in my working memory. So the right brain is the type that, when I say right brain, I mean hemisphere. So the right hemisphere is the type right. that would come up with the statement that there's unceasing change it's constantly constantly changing and then the left is the one that needs to stand back and abstract and see some constancy and then it made me think about time and then the arrow of physics and mm-hmm. i'm wondering if you had any thoughts on the nature of time or the nature of arrow of time in physics
1: well i do kurt but i i don't know how <laughs> how good they are but i i've thought about it an enormous amount and Physicists themselves are divided on the arrow of time, but I tend to be with those who say that without the arrow of time, nothing could mean or be anything at all, that all that we know of physics, even down to the you know, the most rarefied kind of contemporary physics, none of it could be without the existence of time. There can be no processes, in fact, without time. And I believe that the processes are prior to things, which is partly why I entitled this book, The Matter with Things. It's a pun on various levels because I think there's a problem with our material obsession and there's a problem with our thinking the world is made up of things. So I think, you know, I don't take the block theory of time, you know, that it's really a static thing, but we just sort of move about in it. Nor do I take the view that um, it's it's something that most of the philosophers who try to approach time with the single exception of Bergson, seem to me to have confused what they're talking about. And unfortunately, most people nowadays don't read Bergson. And the reason they don't read Bergson is they've inherited a prejudice that somehow Bergson was wrong because he had a debate with Einstein in which it said he didn't understand Einstein, but which it's equally true that Einstein didn't understand Bergson they were looking at two different things, and they weren't necessarily at odds with one another. Einstein was looking at a kind of time like a clock's time, um, whereas Bergson was looking at time as not something that can be measured in that way. And the distinction between a flow and a series is absolutely fundamental, and Bergson spent most of his life trying to help people see why this was so fundamental. And when I saw it, it was absolutely one of the three or four great eureka moments of my life. Where I saw that a lot of the problems that we have, philosophically speaking, and with our attitude to the world, come from us having seen a seamless motion. Hear that sound?
0: Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
1: As a concatenation of an infinite number of slices. And that sounds like an almost technical difference, but in fact, it goes right to the core of the two versions of the world that come into being. Because the left hemisphere is always trying to stop time. It's always trying to freeze time. Because imagine its Uh idea is to pick something up or to catch something. So it, it wants to freeze it and catch it and get it and have it and hold it. But you know, as Goethe said, as Blake said, when you try to freeze the fleeing moment, then you're lost. Because all is in this process of change and flow, and it's respecting that and attuning yourself with it that is wise, not trying to resist it or pretend it doesn't exist. So those are some of my thoughts about time.
0: What is the other model then? So I know you can't go through Berkson's entire model, and I'm assuming you're talking about Berkson as in Henry Berkson?
1: Absolutely, yes, yes.
0: Okay, okay. And yes. I, but all I know about Henry Bergson is that he's associated with Bohmian mechanics, and I need to investigate more about Bergson's theories. Mm. I've been told to, so that's on my list for those who are listening and are eager. I'm working on it. What's the alternative to viewing time as an in infinite slices, infinitesimal slices?
1: Well, what he noticed, and it's very important, is that it only can be turned into slices retrospectively. And it's like a point on a line. When you draw a line, you don't draw a point infinitely small and then another one and so on. You the line is there. In retrospect, you can find a point at which your pencil was at point A in the line. You can you can designate it. But actually there wasn't. A business of going from point A to point B or whatever. Similarly, if you move your arm, it is a single seamless motion. And you can't say I move it to A to B to C to D, you don't. But in retrospect, the representation of motion can be dissected but motion itself can't be dissected. Similarly, the representation of time can be dissected, but time itself can't be dissected. Now, why that is so important to me is that one of the most fundamental differences between the right hemisphere and the left is that the left hemisphere deals with representations. So the right hemisphere deals with things as they are present more. So it, it, it deals with them as they presence, as Heidegger would have said. As they, at the very moment that they are not just present, because that sounds rather passive and mechanical, but as they present, they come into being for you. They come into your, your field of, of of being and awareness. And the right, the right hemisphere is therefore with that living moment, but the left hemisphere is categorizing things, and you can only categorize them a small time after you experience them. So. If you like, its world is a world of a schema, a representation, a map, which can only be made to make any sense when there's something that can be schematized, when there's something that can be mapped. So the difference between what is in the present moment and what is reflected on later and dissected is profound. And what he noticed was that in our thinking process, because we stop and talk and reflect on things, we think that we find the world as our left hemisphere intellect presents it as a thing that's divided up into areas and so on, whereas actually the experience of it is not like that. And because we're so used to to seeing it the left hemisphere way, most people wouldn't see what I'm talking about. They just say, well, I don't know what he means by that. I mean, how? And it is it, almost like having to see a spiritual insight or, 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 or sort of, you know, it's almost like something one would get from meditation to be able to see this difference between, and once you see it, it's, it's obvious, it's everywhere, that the world is this seamless flow. And it's quite different from a dead concatenation of of tiny elements
0: you point out beautifully at one point that language is like money and i believe it's because it only takes its value at the terminus that you have to cash it in so for example with cash it's meaningless until you buy something with it and then this place in which it bottoms out is the body in some sense okay Mm. can you explain what that what you mean by that
1: well again what i mean is that um we can be led into thinking that the world is the world that we describe. The world is the world as we reflect on it and verbalize it. But because that's the bit that we're used to attending to. In fact, the right hemisphere can't speak for the vision that it sees. So it has to somehow convey to the left hemisphere how to use language to convey things that are not structured serially and analytically in the way that the left hemisphere prefers. This is why, as I mentioned earlier, Bohr said, you can only talk about physics, you can only talk about the sacred by using poetry. And the whole point about poetry is that it allows one to see beyond the everyday meanings of words, to a To a web of interconnected meanings that are hinted at. So in a good poem, a phrase has resonances that may set seven or eight different things going in your mind rather than the clinical (laughs) and illusory uh, antiseptic nature of the words taken out of context and put into a kind of manual of instruction. So Words arise out of our bodies. They arise historically out of emotional responses. Animals, in their own way, have a kind of very primitive language. They make sounds that mean things, and they express themselves in gesture and in words. And there's a very long-standing tradition um, coming forth into the 20th century um, that Language evolved out of the generation of embodied meaning in sound, in other words, out of music. And this is where, although I very much admire Steven Pinker in many ways, I do rather take issue with his notion that music is a sort of about as useful as pornography or cheesecake. Music is <laughs> terrifically profound and is, um, is actually more profound than language. Which is why we often say, well, it's beyond me to express and, and so forth. But it's not just the very rarefied things that are beyond language. The philosopher Brian McGee makes a very good point that from the, the most exalted things to the most humble things. So he says, for example, the the towel that I've dropped on the bathroom floor, there is no language to describe the shades of colour in it. The, configuration of the folds, the way in which it relates to everything else in the room. And yet my consciousness immediately takes all that in. I'm aware of it. I know it. But there's no way I can do it in language. And how can I say Leonardo's Supper? You know, how, how, how do you? So language, we, we, we fool ourselves when we think that language is where we live. Language is something we use to try and communicate a certain level of meaning about the world but not all of its meaning.
0: So what if someone says we can, using language or some language, give a representation, a fairly accurate one of The Last Supper, by taking a picture of it and then the zeros and ones that are the RGB values? You're not able to read and consciously comprehend it as a human being, but in some way, shape, or form, it's information. What if someone says that?
1: Well, they've just... um, deftly sidestep the problem by saying that if we take all these um, ones and zeros, which if you look at them and I look at them, there's no Last Supper there, we can put them into a machine which creates a simulacrum. We've developed a machine with instructions on make this come to be something like the Last Supper. So that's really, uh, that's just a way of circumventing the point, which it has not been expressed in words. It, It I mean, there are certain things you can try to express in words, but you, you immediately come down to a handful of cliched terms. As Nietzsche says, language makes the uncommon common, you know, because there's only so many words you can use to describe someone's appearance. You know, they're, they're tall or short or thin or fat or black or white or whatever they are, mm-hmm. and they have mm-hmm. this colored hair and that colored eyes and so on. But that doesn't get you any nearer to what your your loved one looks like, you know? So uh language is a a very useful tool but that's all it is and it it comes about we learn language and i know you're going to be talking to chomsky and you may have noticed that i gently disagree with the i dare to gently disagree but i'm encouraged by the fact lots of other people do too with the idea that it is something like um an abstract system in, in the brain like it could be in a computer waiting for stuff to be filled in, because, in fact, we develop language through the process of interrelationship with other people in an embodied way, which involves emotion and feeling and gesture and so on. This is how children learn words. Um, and. So language has its roots in emotion and the body. It's not some abstract clinical thing that then gets clothed in emotion and the body. It starts from those places. That's my point.
0: Metaphor is language's is cure for the ills entailed to it by language. Explain that. That's another <laughs> well, one. That of beautiful a quote. F- That's a quote. Okay, well, it's a beautiful quote. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Well, it tries to compress... The idea that what are the ills I'm referring to? well, the ills are as I say that something that is only a symbol or a representation of something has to the thing that it represents, and in this way, it's like money that money can mean ultimately that I can have lunch tomorrow with a friend or I can you know buy a car or whatever it is, but the the money itself only has that quality when it's cashed back into life, which is a very complex thing. And language is rather like this. We can refer to things, but the experience that we refer to is no longer in the representation or the reference. It's it's implied by it that it isn't actually there, but that doesn't matter because we think metaphorically all the time and all language is metaphorical. Interestingly, the language of science and philosophy is particularly heavily dependent on, philo- on metaphor, a point made by Lakoff and Johnson in their wonderful books, Metaphors We Live By and "The Philosophy in the Flesh. So um, metaphor literally means a carrying across, And so if you imagine there is this sort of divide or or, or gulf between what the word love means and the experience of love metaphors can carry us across that linguistic divide. They can take us back to the experience of love. And so something as metaphorical as a Shakespeare play or as a piece of music or whatever. And music is metaphorical. It uses metaphors based on bodily movements. So risings and fallings and resonances and all those things that are experienced in a bodily sense. So. These things are evoked in great art, in ritual, in religion, in, in narratives, in mythology, and, and so forth. And they take us back across the divide from those sterile words to the thing that those words were trying, but not able to evoke.
0: Speaking of Lakoff and Johnson, you mentioned, well, it's in your book, a couple quotes from them. One is that reason doesn't separate us from the animals but instead puts us on a continuum with it because we're well reason is predicated in embodiment now i'm wondering if you can explain that because reason to me has to do with logical inference and so on like if then statements how is an if then statement related to my body per se
1: well i think the problem might be in thinking too literalistically about what your body is um I mean, it might not be, as it were, in your thumb, I agree. But your body is everything that is you, apart from, well, not apart from anything, really. I mean, it, we are, for the time that we are alive on this earth, what our bodies make us. And animals that don't have language and don't apparently have any kind of schema of logic, can solve logical puzzles. They can reason things. You know, crows and magpies can give correct answers to logical problems that an eight- or nine-year-old human being won't. I mean, that's just one example. But, I mean, the more one reads about animals and even insects, the more one realizes that the concept that only we can act reasonably or rationally is wrong. Uh, You've probably seen on YouTube, there is in fact a, um, a filmed episode of a crow solving an eight step logical puzzle. And although it has solved each step of the puzzle, in isolation before. It has never solved this particular sequence. And in a matter of about three minutes or five minutes, it's not a very long clip, it has actually taken the eight steps that will allow it to secure the food that it's after. Now, I mean, that's in itself, what do you say about that? You know, is it the crow's language? Is it its mathematics or what? Somehow from experience, and our bodies are the repositories of all our experience that is that is solving this problem. And we don't solve half as many things as we think by thinking about them. In fact, nine-tenths of all the great decisions we make are done unconsciously. We arrive at them unconsciously after thinking about other things, sleeping, and then saying, I think I'll do that. And when we are not aware of things, as Julian Jane's first it out to me anyway in his 1976 book, um, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. We don't really need consciousness for very much. We can weigh options, form judgments, solve puzzles, evaluate beauty, fall in love, um, and do many, many things without thinking about them. At some level, we are working on them. But that what what the left hemisphere privileges as thinking is just the left hemisphere's kind of thinking, which is explicit in language and foregrounding whatever is in the mind but there's a whole what we're conscious of is only one percent maximum of all that there is that's going on in our minds, so the idea that you know we have to be conscious and reason in order to think cleverly is wrong. I mean, one of my favorite philosophers is A.N. Whitehead, and um, in the book, in fact, on the structure of mathematics, he says that, I can't remember the exact phrase, which is wonderful, but he says that um, conscious thought is like cavalry charges in battle. Uh, It's expensive it's wasteful, it requires fresh horses, and can only be done at unusual moments. So most of the time, we're, we're living perfectly rationally, perfectly intelligently, but without actually thinking about things explicitly.
0: If we had different bodies, or if we grew up on a different planet, a different evolutionary chain or tree, would we have reasoned differently? Would we reason differently? Would our inferences be different? Or is logic universal?
1: well how would i know i mean <laughs> there are too many counterfactuals in that um you can't extrapolate from us to a being that we can only imagine and we don't know everything in fact we can only words, know about, what it is
0: how about let me rephrase it is logic or the way that we've formulated logic and rationality and reason which i'm conflating and i know there's a difference between them but for the sake of this are they substrate dependent so the fact that we are human we came up with reason in this particular manner and that aliens might not share our reason. They would come up with different inferences and it would be valid.
1: Well, I would, I mean, again, I don't think anyone can be certain about such things, but my intuition would be that reason and logic are, if you like, substrate independent, that they're not just a human invention. But then I think that about a lot of things that are not so much inventions as discoveries. Uh, I mean, confusingly, the word invention originally meant to find something, but it now means to make it up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I think we do in experience is come to an awareness and an understanding of things that are not entirely dependent on us. Let me put it that way. And I think these things include um, essential values like good, goodness, and evil, and beauty, and things like that. So, and and this is not unusual, um, Derek Parfit, who was a colleague at All Souls, and I say a colleague, I mean, in, in that we were both fellows at the same college, but I mean, he was a, a very great philosopher and an atheist, but he believed that goodness and beauty were ontological primaries that they weren't things that were just valuations we put on things because we happen to like them or not like them and i would be i would be rather inclined to that position too
0: you also talked about okay so inventiveness is Mm. the etymology of it is related to finding and then also Mm. being originative so being original Mm has to do with the origin going back. Can you explain that? Because that was one part of your book. And your book is quite lengthy. And I wanted to finish this in time. I Spent the past week or so just absorbing pretty much pure Ian. Pure Ian for this. And I made you notes. Where, <laughs> I made notes where I wasn't able to comprehend fully and I just had to move on. And that was one of them. So do you mind expounding on original thinking or coming up with some original object and its relationship. We think of it as a new but you also made an analogy that it's original, that is it's going back,
1: yes, okay, um again, I can't remember exactly what what it was I said that you're you're referring to, but I think I can see w- w- what's being hinted at um It's partly a distinction, if I may say that is in similar structure to that between fantasy and imagination, so fantasy is the putting together in a novel way of things that elements that really we have experienced and are aware of but we put them together rather as i say like those children's books where the pages are divided uh in into three parts and you can turn the pages and create animals with a head of a seal and a body of a goat and all that sort of thing um so that is fantasy but imagination is looking at something that you think you know, and it seems entirely ordinary, and suddenly seeing it for the first time. This is something Wordsworth wrote about a great deal, that it wasn't about striving for something um, outside of the ordinary. It was finding the extraordinary within the ordinary. Now, when, when you talk about the origin or original thinking, many great revolutionaries and and I don't mean to say political revolutionaries especially, I mean people who brought about paradigm shifts in our thinking did so by going back to a perception that had been lost sight of um, sometimes a thousand Mm -hmm. years ago Mm -hmm. or more. And they renovated something that had been lost from the culture. And that was what was revolutionary about it. So that I don't think that an original thinker is somebody who just makes it all up because none of us that. We are all the repositories of centuries, millennia of other people's experience that has gone into the making of us and into the ideas that we believe. And so to strive to be original is to cut yourself off from that and to cut yourself off from the rest of humanity saying, look, I did this on my own. Whereas I think that is a a typical problem of our age, that It's great that we're individuals, don't get me wrong, and I think that, you know, conformism is a problem, but we are only also individuals because we also belong together in a society that both brings together and nourishes individual flourishing. Curiously, the coming together helps the being different. I, I sometimes talk about a couple in a relationship, that a good couple is one who become more themselves through the relationship, not mm-hmm. less themselves, they didn't sacrifice their individuality, but it is actually realized and enriched and brought forth into greater being by the, the, the relationship. Going back to where we started, uh-huh. that relationships create the things that are related as much as okay. the other way around.
0: Okay, here's what occurs to me when you say that. So let's say you have a great couple. Let's say you are you married?
1: Uh, I was but I'm not.
0: Okay, so I'm married. So let's just take me as an example. Yeah, let's say me and my wife, I find that the longer I spend with her, the more I do feel authentic, but at the same time, and the more she feels authentic, but at the same time, I can imagine we're becoming closer and more and more akin Mm. to one another's personality. So then I wonder, is the most authentic self for each individual as we come closer and closer to our core? Is it the same? or extremely similar, because otherwise I can't make sense of this paradox of you becoming authentic as an individual, but at the same time becoming closer to other people.
1: Well, I think that the deep structure of reality is entirely paradoxical to the left hemisphere's take on it, that things that are opposite are absolutely bound up with one another. And it's the left hemisphere that wants things to be either the one thing or the other, either to be separate or to be together. But the right hemisphere sees that the <clears throat> it, it, it doesn't have to be either or, it has to be both and. And what's more, it has to be both either or and both and.
0: I don't know if you've heard of paraconsistent logic with Graham Priest.
1: I have, yes, yes. Okay. Well, and, and I'm not sure I entirely understand it, but what I know of it, I rather like.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So explain to me, to the audience, how can something be and not be?
1: Uh, um, well, that, that's a big question. But when we say something is something, we may well mean, when viewed in this way, or in this context, change the context, change the point of view and they're equally something different. So the trouble with the left hemisphere is that it decontextualizes. This is very, very important difference. The right hemisphere alone understands that what a thing is, is what it is only because of the context in which it is. And that context doesn't take away from its being what it is, but contributes it to its being what it is. If you take the context away, you diminish it. Now, that's just a a very obvious down-to-earth example of what I'm really saying, that we, we form social contexts, we form loving contexts, and in those contexts we are changed, we are altered. Everything we do, everything we think alters us, which is why we need to be careful about how we think. As I say, attention is a moral act. It changes us and it changes the world.
0: Well, that's one of the most frightening aspects of your book. Uh... <laughs> Okay, you know, we can get to that part later. A distinction that's important for the audience, it was important and enlightening for me, was between yeah. Wissen and Kennen. I believe they're mm. German words about knowledge. Yes. Do you mind expounding?
1: Yes. Or if you prefer savoir and connaître in French. And the simple way of saying it is that savoir, Wissen, is knowing that something is the case. Whereas connaître, Kennen, is knowing something direct. So I know that Paris is the capital of France. I know Paris, because of the times I've spent there and what they've meant to me. And I know that, um, you know, the, the the tree in my garden is of a certain species and a certain um, height and so forth. But I only know it because I walk past it, stop under it, and experience it. So really, there's a distinction between a kind of abstracted form of knowing data, knowing things about things, and the knowing of them rather than about them.
0: I'll tell you one of the aspects of your book that I found unsettling, let's say. I've had this experience, I think I've talked about it before on another podcast, perhaps at the Bernardo Castrop, if you've heard of him, I have where it was in the middle of the night I'd woken up from a dream. And then as I was falling back to sleep in this hypnagogic state, I heard my wife say a word. I don't know what she said. I don't know. I I still don't know if she said it or didn't say, but it could have been, it doesn't actually matter. It was like, yes, or okay. And Mm -hmm. then I wasn't sure if she had actually said it and I started Mm -hmm. to go, into a spiral of extreme anxiety. And I'm not a person who's ever had a panic attack in my life. Mm, but then mm. I started to feel like, am I going crazy? Am, mm-hmm. I, am I hearing voices? I don't wanna hear voices. Oh my gosh. And then I started to think, okay, don't hear a voice, don't hear a voice. But then I was thinking about Freudian repression. Am I now repressing a voice that will come back even harder later? Oh no, so should I move toward a voice? And what, would, what if the voice tells me to kill myself? I'm not suicidal. I don't hate my life, not in the least. What if it tells me to harm someone else? And, and then I, I had to wake my wife up and tell her, please help me because I'm, 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 I need help breathing. And then so she mm. calmed through that. The next day, I had a similar panic attack. And then two days later, I had half of one. Mm. Then it just went away. I even talked to my doctor about this. She said, you should go to psychotherapy to talk, talk this out. Mm. But it, it ameliorated on its own. Then mm, mm. a couple days ago, this is fresh, so, but this came from your book. This is why I, I love you. But then I curse you at the same time. There's plenty of talk in your book about schizophrenia and each time that would mm. come up, my heart would race and I'm hearing myself in it where I'm not the type of person that, as you know, if I'm talking to you, I'm not a, a fundamentalist materialist who dispenses with the divine and so on. In fact, I'm extremely mm. open to it. And the eulogisms I get for this channel is that I'm extremely open and I'm actually trying to understand, like I'm trying to understand your point mm. of view. I'm trying to morph it with mine. I'm trying to understand other mm. people's, but that's extremely difficult because it puts me on mm. such unstable ground that I don't know what's real. And then I'm mm-hmm. co- constantly questioning what's real. Is this real? Am I the only one that's real? Am I fake? Mm. Is, are people lying to me? And, mm. and s- sometimes just when I say it out loud, it, it helps me through it. Part of it is like, I'm mm. keeping it in. I don't want to scare my spouse. I don't want to scare someone else. Mm. But I also thought another part is that there's no one else that I hear talk about this much, not no one in the public sphere. And so I thought
1: mm.
0: one time I heard Peterson was schizophrenic. It was, it turns out to be false, but that actually gave me, gave me hope. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, mm. someone else is experiencing this. And then I thought, okay, Kurt, mm. why don't you talk about it? First of all, it's curative to myself. Second of all, someone else mm. might hear it and be like, okay, this is, I'm not someone who's asinine and and so maybe mm. someone else who's somewhat normal is going through this castrop said kurt don't worry this is part of the spiritual journey when you question consciousness and you involve yourself in these subjects this will happen but either way what you said which is that you view the world more and more mechanistically that's the left brain now that's my entire life up until maybe a few years ago because mm. i'm mm. trained as a physicist a scientist and mm-hmm. that And that you're extremely self-conscious, speaking to yourself over and over and over. And Mm. I feel like that's what I do. And I've I've eschewed music, too, for the past 12 years. Mm. I haven't listened to music because I just find it to be a time waster. And I'm wondering how Mm. much have I hurt myself by doing so? Mm. Mm. I wanted to say this to you because, well, Mm. first, I just wanted to hear your thoughts. And then you can also relate it to the world at large.
1: Yes. Well... (laughs) Um, I think it's not unusual for people to to have these experiences. And people who think a lot, ponder a lot, philosophize a lot, conceptualize a lot, do come to this crisis of doubt, if you like. And it's, I mean, the first great exponent of this was Descartes. Um, but... <clears throat> For his age, he lived a remarkably ungrounded kind of existence. Uh, What I mean is that most people then still lived a more rooted, embodied existence. And he probably, by his personality as much as anything, was inclined to... I think he had a schizoid temperament, actually. And why this is important is that there's a wonderful book, which I often mention and will, will mention again by Louis Sass, a psychologist at Rutgers, called Madness and Modernism. And it is a fascinating work. And it, it was completely another of these sort of eureka moments for me when I read it, because he drew so many parallels between schizophrenia and modern culture. I mean, even including high culture. And he drew 25 or 30 parallels that are clear to anyone like him or me who has treated many patients with schizophrenia, between the way they encounter things, experience them and aspects of modernity. And this comes together for me in the fact that the left hemisphere is in a way ungrounded. It has taken things, taken them out of context taken them out of the lived experience of the body, detached them from what they mean to us, and then said, I don't know what this means. Because as it were, having taken it out, ripped it out of the context that would give it meaning, it no longer has any meaning. This induces a sort of what's real, what isn't real. The only people who live the sort of very strange (laughs) lives that we do are likely to be tormented by this because they don't see consciousness as something in here and a reality that's just out there we come back to something we talked about a little earlier and could talk about a lot more which is how are these two things related Co-creating. it's neither that there's just an in here and an out there uh, nor that it's all made up or it's you know so it's a it's a connection we are beings that can attend to the world That is our essence. And as Louis Lavella, 20th century philosopher said, attention is love. Love is a pure attention to the existence of whatever is other, another person, another thing. And I think that that is how we relate to the world, that it is not alien to us at all, nor are we alien to it. It's not that we have to figure it out as if it were an odd thing that had dropped in our past. You know, um, Paley in his um, deism thought that, uh, gave the image that the universe sorry, was like a watch that some, sorry, Paley, an Paley, 18th okay. century bishop. Yes, yes, Thomas Paley, I think he was, um, said that, um, you know, the, imagine the world is like a, a watch. You walk on a heath, you find this watch you immediately know there must be a watchmaker. I mean, you, this thing didn't just happen. So he says the world is like this. And Dawkins uh, says, and I think very fairly, that he is himself a paleist without God, because he, just like Paley, thinks there is a mechanism here that is working itself out. He just doesn't think it's God. He thinks it's genetics, that there is something, as it were, in a gene, the robot that controls, etc. These images of control are there in him, as they would be in the idea of a deistic God. What I mean by a deistic God is an engineering God, an engineer who is separate from creation, winds it up and occasionally Mm -hmm. tinkers with it. Whereas I believe whatever is divine is in the fabric of the world and is not known, not certain, even to whatever that divinity is. It's a process of true creation, sort of exhilaration of that, that carries the whole process of creation, of a creative cosmos. Anyway, um, I'm probably not making sense, it's so hard to convey these things briefly, but Schelling in the 18th century, who's one of my favorite um, philosophers, was able to express this, not not very easy German, I have to agree, but this is at the core of his perception that the inner and the outer, as is often said in many non-Western cultures, they are distinct, but they're not separate. And that's a very important point, that it comes back again to the business of not being lost in um, a context. You're distinct from another person, but you're not separate from them or, or sort of, Divided from them you are connected to them, but you're still distinct and I, I sort of think of the world as being seamless, but with you can go seamlessly from um red to green without even knowing that this has happened you know in in a, in a three or four minute film, the color change can change, is. nobody notices the color changing, but it's changed completely so it's possible to move along a continuum. And and the the spectrum of colors is an example of something that is not a concatenation. It's not lots of little separate colors. It is simply a spectrum that can be moved along in such a way that you can go from something very distinct to something else distinct, but they're never been separate. They've never been cut off from one another. They're part of the same whole. And I, I think that a number of physicists that I've read in my attempts to understand modern, um, well, quantum field theory actually is the theory that I find most congenial to my philosophy and seems to be being espoused by a lot of physicists. But in that case, again, things can be distinct but not ultimately separate. They, uh, They belong to fields which can be more concentrated or collapse in certain ways at certain times in certain places.
0: Actually, speaking of quantum field theory, on these pages that I have notes for you at the back, because I thought that we were scheduled for two hours earlier by accident, so I was just doing some quantum field okay. theory problems just to get myself more familiar <laughs> with it, because I've, I've been out of the game for a little okay. while.
1: Okay.
0: Why is it that you mentioned One day you'll be able music? to explain
1: it to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> why, why is it that non-rhythmic music is salutary compared to rhythmic music? See, let me explain my reasoning for this. Well, first of all, you mentioned it in the book. But second, I told you, I don't listen to music. I don't get pleasure from music. And I I haven't done so for maybe 12 or even 14 years. I play music. Like, I can play this and sing. I like to do that. I like to listen to Eminem occasionally. But I don't like to listen to music. And for me, it's because I'm so in my head. I'm such a child of the Enlightenment, let's say that mm. I see that as a waste of time. And I just need to be thinking. Mm. And it came from when I was around 18 and I was mm. on a train and the train ride passed in like two minutes when it was a 20 minute train ride. And it was because mm. I was listening mm. to music and I stopped and thought mm. that's not good because I could have been thinking, could have been solving problems. <laughs> so then I'm like, from this day forward on the train, you just think, 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 think. It reminds me of the first angel. Then he spoke to himself. And I yes. feel like I have inadvertently been harming myself, and now what I'm doing is a slow process of undoing. And your book is yes. helping, but it's also unnerving. Thank you. Either way, you said that mm. okay, listen, music these days is 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 rhythmic, and that's not the best well, kind for embodiment. Non-rhythmic music is. So can you explain? Well, that to I,
1: me? I don't I don't think I said that. I I, I really don't. Um I haven't got anything against rhythmic music. I just said that the, the most powerful expressive elements in music include melody and harmony and that rhythm is only a part of music and it's the only part that the left hemisphere really understands especially very basic Ah, pounding beats that are repetitive and mechanical um, because even complex beats with cross rhythms and syncopations are better understood by the right hemisphere. But melody and harmony are really very much dependent, for most people, non-professional musicians, dependent on the right hemisphere. And all I was really saying is that in our culture, I was just pointing to the 101 ways in which we can see the what I consider to be the the dire impact of not using or paying attention to what our right hemispheres will still tell us if we just listen to what they're enabling us to understand, experience, and and live in. Uh, one of those um, one of those hundred and one things is the way in which music has changed, interestingly, to be largely a matter of rhythm, and that melodies and harmonies are not as subtle as they, they used to be, um, and are in many kinds of music. But there's nothing wrong with rhythm in itself. Although there is something very important about variation in rhythm. So certainly in playing, if you're a great pianist, you, you wouldn't play something in the way that a computer would play the notes with exact same lengths and exact same intervals. Um, There's something called rubato, which you may know of, which is the business of very slight variations from bar to bar in the movement of the music. Um, And this is a parallel to the fact that living rhythms are always variable. They're not uh, mechanical. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely amazed when I was on the obstetrics wards um, when I was a doctor in training, Um, And it just begun that that attachment to learn that when the fetus the heartbeat, the fetal heartbeat is entirely rhythmical, the baby is an emergency. The baby is in danger Mm. of dying Mm. and a healthy fetus has a variable heartbeat.
0: As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness and math. I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the bestsellers trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off, plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you, to Mosh for sponsoring this video.
1: No, I mean, that's an image to me of many other things that, you know, that, there is a beauty in the slight hesitances in dance, in music. These very, very hard to put your finger on what they are. And they're, they're within an overall frame of irregularity. So there's irregularities within the overarching frame of regularity. And this comes to something very, very deep for me, which is that we need togetherness but we also need distinctness we need individuality but we need um the whole but the important thing is we should be under the embrace of the force for togetherness not the force for separation so in brief we need the force for division and we need the force for union we need both both need to be present we need to be unified not divided
0: Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to dot com slash everything and use the code everything. This reminds me of longing versus want. In your book, you mentioned longing is a unification, a stretching out to, but want is a desire yeah. which puts you with, separate from. Yes. Is there a connection yes. or is that just in my head?
1: No, so uh, I'm delighted that you made that connection. I think it's it's exactly right from 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 my point of view, and in fact, there is um if, if people are interested, if you if you Google McGilchrist's longing and wanting, I think it's called. I gave an hour long talk um in London about four years ago, on the distinction between longing and wanting, and nowadays it seems to me that we have lost the sense of a longing for something to which we already feel an attraction and which is calling to us and which we are, we are sort of uh, rather blind way, trying to, to reach towards, but constant reaching out to, instead we have wants, you know, I want that, that you get mm-hmm. it and put it in your little bag of stuff. What do you want in a relationship? You we even
0: say that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I these words all have their meaning and they all have their value and they, they all have their place. But, but no, I think there was a very, I mean, it's it's fascinating. The word long literally comes from an Anglo-Saxon root, which means to stretch out something that is gone from you, but which you are still connected and you want to reconnect with. In fact, it is this, systole and diastole, if you like, which are from the heartbeat, you know, the systole followed by the diastole, the lup followed by the tup. There's this kind of contraction and release is the way in which movement happens in nature by alternations of that kind. Produce something that is just a kind of addition of the two in some neutral way or, a, or perhaps a compromise, a 50-50. It produces something completely new. This is the point. It is the creation. The creativity of your life, of this world, of the cosmos, depends on our ability to see that opposites need to be held together. The world is not as simple as we think it is. Things that we think are good also conceal something that is bad. The things that we think are bad also conceal something that is good. And we need to finesse these things in order to find our way in the world. What I mean by the opposition bringing something new into being is the tension Of a string of a guitar or a violin. It's important for that, that it's pulled in two directions at once. In fact, if it weren't pulled in two directions at once, it wouldn't work. You might say, well, that's a waste of energy. Why pull things in two directions at once? Why not come to an agreement and a compromise and just stop pulling? Well, then you Mm -hmm. don't have a string anymore. You don't have a a violin anymore. You don't have any music anymore. Well, I mean, something fair, comes out of that conflict, which is very important.
0: Sorry, to be fair, in string theory, you can't have closed loop strings and you just give them attention. It's just like a variable. You vary.
1: oh, I I really wasn't um uh, uh, pretending to talk about a string theory. I really don't understand don't I, it. <laughs> I know.
0: Okay, when you say that you're like, mm, we need to, we're separate, but we're also together, and this impulse to be separated should be there, and the impulse to be together should be there. We should be guided by the together one more so than the separate one. That's the individuality first Okay. Well, that to me, it, 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 reminds, oh me is, I, reminds me.
1: I'm not meaning this, by the way, can I just say, I'm not meaning yeah. this principally or only uh, to do with social relations. I'm thinking of it as a metaphysical structural feature of reality, that it has this structure of the need for difference and togetherness, not just we as human beings have it.
0: Okay, well, now you gave me another idea. <laughs> so let's say I'm walking along the beach. Yeah. And I'm looking yeah. at the waves and the sand and the soil. Am I supposed to feel, or is it good for me to feel, connected to it and feel as if the waves are alive in some manner and I'm speaking to the rocks? Because in the deadened left hemispheric view, I see them, or one would see them, as impressions, picturesque impressions upon my slate mm. of sense, so sense data pressed upon me. Mm. But then I can... Mm. And then I know that that's associated with schizophrenic mm. ideation in its extreme. Okay. But then yes. in the other extreme, I can see someone going and talking to the rocks and, and holding mm-hmm. them up and kissing them. As that, its own form of psychosis, but I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know if that's actually <laughs> associated with schizophrenic thought. Either way, I want to hear. So which one should I do? Should I stand back passively of you, or should I treat it somehow emulated in my brain as this is living, be Kurt, be in this world as if you're living, engaging with it. But these are not just plastic <laughs> objects that, of wood. They're, they're also not beings, let's say, but they're, there's something to them. There's some life that they have. So how, how does one dance that web? Cause I can see what? inane craziness on both ends of the spectrum.
1: but does it have to be one or the other in keeping with what I've been saying? Isn't it an error to go to one extreme of either of these? Not because the reality exists in a compromise, but because there is a wholly different position that is only found when you reconcile the two opposites. That is my point. Um, And it's imaged in that taut string. Um, But I think it's a very unusual view we have of the world that we are separate from it and it is dead uh, and that any life in it is something we attribute to it. I argue, and it's too long an argument to do now, I even argue that inanimacy is, if you like, the ultimate limit case of animacy. Not that animacy is some weird thing that popped into the cosmos i think animacy is of the essence of a conscious universe in different ways in different degrees animacy and as that, animosity
0: we, or or the jungian animus no
1: no as uh, as as in uh, things being animate so animate. Um, obviously yes um, but uh, we don't have to to go to 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 that f- that ext- well, not an extreme, but but to that length, if you like. Um, we I wouldn't have time to justify that position, but I think I do in my book. But in any case, most people at most times in the world have not failed to make a proper scientific assessment and come up with a theory that things around them are alive, they know they're alive because they actually experience that and we have told ourselves that we can't be experiencing that because it's just not wrong isn't it i mean in an age of science but what do we know about that actually science is not dealing with that question science is not able to talk about whether there is um uh, uh, something that has consciousness or animacy in the world outside of our own heads so I don't think that one needs to either tell oneself one's wrong when one feels a sense of connectedness or think that being properly connected means you're being being swallowed up and you don't, you know, love those waves so much that you go into a rough sea and get drowned. So you need to keep, keep walking this balance. And it's all about the balance or harmony. Harmony was the Greek word. And it's a word that we've lost because I mean our world has so little harmony in it. Um, things that we call harmony are, are actually dictated fiats that things must be like this. But no, true harmony is is a kind of thing that has to evolve between things being fully themselves and not pretending to be something they're not. So yeah, I think it I think it is a very, very important element. I wrote also an article for the Journal of Consciousness Studies on the question of the self, because I think there's a confusion, you know, that the holy person or the wise person has no self. And I, I think I know what is meant. Mm-hmm. I think I what is it? can see very clearly what is meant. Not a narrow, egotistic, selfish, um fragmentary, atomistic self, of course. But At the same time, by growing in richness and thinking and meditating and creating and just being, you are growing a soul. You are growing a person. You are growing, fulfilling an individual element of the cosmos that will never be there again. And surely to say that that's all valueless and that the whole business of existence is to try and deny that and get as far away from it as possible seems to me a little bit um, negative because even the Buddha um, you know had to sleep had to eat had to go to the lavatory um, if somebody shot the Buddha he didn't go well he didn't shoot me because he did you know uh, every, everybody has their individual self but there's a very big difference between what Jung called The self, which is a sort of mature thing that you grow into, and the ego, which is this sort of more left hemispheric sense of the Mm, self as mm -hmm. the acquirer, the manipulator, the one that wields power. And that's very important, again, in the, the spiritual philosophies of most cultures. The renouncing of power, because power is very much the left hemisphere's major tool. It exists in order to make us powerful, to get things, to grab things, to get prey, to build things, to make things, and thinks that we will become happier or better in doing so, although all the evidence is very clear. We don't become happier or morally better people by doing it.
0: What you say just makes me think of... There's quite a few thoughts. I'll I'll splay out two of them. One is... Okay. Freud said, or at least Freud surmised, that his id, ego, and so on would have some morphological equivalent in the brain if neuroscience would just progress. Now, it sounds like what you're saying is, to some degree, that's true, because the left hemisphere is associated with the ego. Is that correct?
1: You, I don't really want to to say yes to that or no to it, because in some senses, yes, in some senses, no. It It depends too much what you mean by ego and some aspects of the superego might be better identified with the frontal lobes rather than with either right or left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And certainly it wouldn't be right to say the right hemisphere is the id. The right hemisphere is the morally self-abnegating part of us, the part that enables us to be good friends, parents, and citizens. It is the bit that David Hecht at UCL in London says quite straightforwardly, uh, and I, I think I, I'd si- sign up to it largely, that the right hemisphere is moral in its attitudes and the left is basically immoral. It, it, it is there for what it can get. Is
0: the left hemisphere immoral or amoral?
1: Immoral. Okay. In other words, it has a morality. And it has it has really no sense of well, let me just go back on that. In the book, this new book, I argue that the left-handers can't really understand morality. It hasn't any really a sense of morality. So it substitutes for morality calculation. It says if I weigh up the consequences of this act and the consequences of that act, I can find out which is the morally right act. That sounds very good, but there are many circumstances in life in which it would be profoundly immoral even to carry out a calculus of that kind. And it's in normal circumstances, apart from one or two philosophers, it's mainly people who have right hemisphere damage or frontal lobe damage, or are very severely autistic, who think in that way. Most of us have a sense that morality is something more complex than that, and that we don't do it. Uh, it would be quite wrong to make decisions based on an entirely dispassionate mathematical. In fact, how would you attach the values? I mean, would would the value gained by many sadistic um, paedophiles around the world outweigh in the pleasure given to thousands of people the suffering of one innocent child that is tortured for fun? Well, if you have to do a sum on that, then you've, there's something wrong with your moral sense. And I know that's an extreme case, but I'm afraid it's a rather important indicator of something that is wrong with utilitarianism on its own. Utilitarianism has a place sometimes. But again, it's this problem that the left hemisphere thinks that whatever it is it does is the only thing and the best thing, whereas it's actually not even core to morality, utilitarianism. I believe in a kind of... um,
0: Objective moral? I'm so sorry? Do you believe in objective morals?
1: Well, it depends what you mean by objective. I I don't believe that they're just subjective in the sense that they're made up by us, but I don't believe they're objective in the sense that that a machine would be able to calculate it. I mean, when I say
0: objective, I mean... That there's something at the structure of reality at the fundament at the abutment that has morals and that it's not just oh, absolutely our own... okay
1: no no thank you for clarifying no definitely no i think the cosmos is moral um which isn't to say that it's all good of course because morality includes the whole spectrum but i don't think morality is an element that we've somehow we've come to and is simply an expression of things we like and things we don't like i think it is a very profound aspect of the business of being alive as is the appeal of beauty and of complexity of mathematics of of, of music of landscape all these things embody something that unless we're you know crippled cribbed and confined by the left hemispheres take on things obviously speak to us about something more important than what the left hemisphere alone can tell us there's nothing wrong you know it's not that we all be better if we had a left hemisphere stroke of course not as I often say it's my second favorite hemisphere it's terribly important but it's you know it it got to be under the supervision of the right it's a very very good servant it carries out very useful tasks but it hasn't got the sight to see which are the useful tasks so it must be under the Aegis, the protection, the supervision of the right hemisphere. is a, a, a bad master, but a very good servant.
0: In Christianity, there's a heavy, heavy emphasis on both love and truth. And hmm. it's not just speak the truth no matter what. It's speak, speak the truth guided by love. So the truth has to serve love. I'm wondering, is that mirrored by the bi-hemispheric structure? Is that one right brain is the love in this sense, and then the left is the one that's associated with truth, at least objectively can be associated with some form of objective truth. Or am I just going off on a limb?
1: Am I seeing <laughs> I, I think you're going, you're going an awful lot further than I would go. I, I, I don't think I would say any of that. Um, but I think it's perfectly legitimate to speculate when you're thinking about the richness of an idea or an image or a metaphor about what it can illuminate. So I don't think there's anything wrong with having an idea and thinking, well, maybe not. But I I think, honestly, I'd say maybe not to that one.
0: What do you make of Daniel Dennett's explaining consciousness or consciousness explained?
1: Well, I I think it's it's a perfect um, expression, a very intelligent expression of a certain kind of take on the world, of of Weltanschauung, which... Uh, is uh, to use the term that you invoked at the beginning of our talk. Uh, that is, I think, rather sadly impoverished, um, and it's not a thing that can easily be solved by argument. These are things that you come to through experience. Uh, in other words, they involve canon as well as vision, and they come out of the fruit of many kinds of attention to the world not just the claim that comes from arguing in a seminar room. And so I, not, not that there's anything wrong with doing that, but again, it's a, a supplementary aspect of what philosophy is. Philosophy has got a little bit lost, I think, as a sort of technical department in the university, somewhere, somewhat like engineering. And interestingly, Dan Dennett says that if he hadn't been a philosopher, he'd probably been an engineer, um, which, which seems to me intuitively right. Um, but it also points to perhaps a certain, I don't know, unwillingness to accept that things might be beyond what he knows and more complex. It's interesting that engineers, for example, have a very high, I did a study on this at the Maudsley Hospital, which I've never actually got around to publishing, but it was very clear that I didn't expect the results, that people who became mentally ill at university uh, with a major mental illness, those who became manic depressive, i.e. had an emotional disturbance uh, as a primary element in their psychosis, were not principally philosophers or engineers, but those with schizophrenia were massively more likely to have been studying engineering or philosophy than any other subject. And it's also come to light that um, terrorists who are fundamentalists have uh, engineers are more represented amongst them than amongst other people. I, I you know, of course, I'm not I'm not trying to say that <laughs> that that all engineers are like this, but I'm just pointing to a sort of certain kind of I don't know.
0: The predilection for engineer-like thinking is what. Is also well, it's a
1: predilection with... for, for categorical thinking and for a lack of willingness to accept that things are not certain and may be much more complex than one has given them credit for being.
0: Let's see. I want I'm trying to find this one question about, well, okay, before I find that question, I'm curious, how is it that you were able to pin down the insights about the right brain by using your left brain? because this is a book written in language and so on. So did you engage in meditative exercises? Did you speak to spiritual gurus? How did you do it? Or did you just read dispassionately the literature? And then you said, okay, this is what the right brain does. Let me write that down.
1: Well, I think it was very like my idea of the right brain guiding and the left hemisphere doing much of the sort of procedural work. So it's often been pointed out to me that without a highly active left hemisphere, I couldn't possibly have written that book with its attention to expressing extremely difficult things that are not intuitively the things that most people nowadays in the West think in language and arguing for them and adducing an enormous amount of scientific evidence. Um, So I think the left hemisphere, as I say, was a valuable servant to me. But what I hope is that I was guided by a sense of as something that I was I was aware of, but not fully aware of, and wanted to explore more and to bring into more into the light, really. Never fully into the light, but a bit further into the light so that it could be better seen. I think this is the process. It's it's more like seeing a gestalt, seeing a form, than it is culminating an argument in which step A leads to B through to Z and then you switch off and say, right, proved. That's never going to be a success in philosophy in my view I say rather controversially because the world is not like that and Plato right at the start thought that we shouldn't even write philosophy down that it could only be done by people living people talking to one another for a long period and getting to know one another and that then an intuition would come about like a spark would, would, would be kindled. Now, that's right at the founding of modern Western philosophy, but we've got a very long way from it um, I, I yes I, I think the the image that I, I like is it, it, and it's occurred to me when I was writing my very first book in my twenties was that what I was trying to say was that we have understandings of things sp- specifically works of literature or of music or art or whatever they are not by a linear chain of discovery but by circling them and seeing them from different aspects and that it's more like a picture that gradually comes into focus or even quite suddenly at some point comes into focus so at the time you're looking at it it doesn't seem coherent but then gradually you see bit comes and you see, I see you have an aha mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. and things begin to fall into place. And then other things refuse to fall into the picture that you've got and they help guide mm. the next stage. So that a new gestalt, a better one replaces. And indeed in philosophy, what we're doing is always just replacing one gestalt with another. What I mean by a gestalt is a form, which is a whole which is more than any of the parts. I know you know this, but I'm just saying it in case any listener doesn't define the term familiar, but it's the whole idea that there is a whole of something that can't be accessed fully by simply dividing it up into its parts. Something essential to it is loss.
0: I have a quote here. It's you quoting Sass from Schizophrenic Mind. And I'm not going to, I'm just going to paraphrase it because it's uh, quite a long paragraph. It says that, When you engage in the world in a passive, disengaged, self-conscious, stare at the world in an objective manner, it becomes bizarre, alien, frightening. And that's akin to the schizophrenic mind. However, the process of mindfulness meditation seems shockingly similar, where you're supposed to stand back and you simply observe, no judgment, don't engage. It's all just being fed to you. Yes. But yet, on the one hand, mindfulness meditation is seen as salutary, but then obviously schizophrenia is not. It's unadaptive. So how do you balance those two or solve that antinomy?
1: Well, in terms of hemisphere, (laughs) the hemisphere paradigm, one is what happens when you allow the left hemisphere only to be working. This is the standing back so that your body is not involved, so that your feeling self is not involved, so that you have deliberately cut off all the contacts from something and then see it as something utterly alien. Whereas the mindfulness uh, is, and in, interestingly, and perhaps not essentially, but interestingly, the science of mindfulness shows that it does rely more heavily on right hemisphere Um activations than left, and indeed on on changes, practitioners, in the structure of the right hemisphere. But I don't think that's the important point. I think what is going on in mindfulness is that you are adopting the, the position of the right hemisphere towards the world, which is in fact, although you might think it is similar, it is the exact opposite. Because whereas the one is, as it were, isolated And detached, the other is standing back enough to allow the self not to crowd everything out. Where the one is actually thinking about things all the time, the other is saying, no, I'm not going to think at all. I'm just going to be there with it. Now, in the first case, in the sort of frightening, alienating way, which interestingly Uh, Schreber describes uh, the 19th century judge who became schizophrenic in his middle years and wrote a wonderful journal of his mental illness. Um, Schreber describes exactly this, that the world becomes alien as soon as you start reflecting on it so much that you, you drop all the connection with it. Now, in mindfulness, you are not absent from the world. It's about being fully present in the world. The, the, the idea is that in normal life, you're not fully present. You're not actually there with the world at all because your thoughts, your ideas, your judgments, right. your self is crowding it all out. So, in fact, they're quite opposite in their tendency.
0: I see, and I, see. I, I
1: sometimes talk about something called necessary distance. And uh, what I mean by that is exactly that kind of distance that enables you to see something properly as a whole, not to swamp it. But it doesn't mean being so far detached from it that you can't see it or understand it or relate to it. That would be the opposite of necessary distance. That would be toxic distance. Mm -hmm. And there is such a thing as toxic fusion in which you can be so close to something you can't see it, make it out or accept its being at all.
0: Why is it that you associated in a metaphor the rising up and floating with the left hemisphere and then being on the ground with the right hemisphere? Because to me, I would think that the left one is the one that's on the ground manipulating and the left, sorry, and the right hemisphere is the one that can see the whole picture.
1: Yes. Well, you very, uh, I think, entirely rightly put your finger on the way in which any one metaphor breaks down in these circumstances, and you have to use a whole variety of them. What I was really thinking of was that it, it was like the difference between someone who is actually living a life on the ground and somebody who is doing a sort of aerial photograph of it in order to map it that as it were all that is there on the ground is present to the person who's experiencing it headlong in the business of life who actually sees the garden sees their children you know hears the wind and sees the stars and the mind that is already dissecting analyzing and remote so you're quite right that the left hemisphere, this is another way of putting a finger on what I was trying to say is there is a kind of distancing which can be remote, but there is a kind of distancing which enables you to see the whole picture, just as the kind of being fixed on the here and now, which is generous and wise and allows you to understand it, and the being fixed on the here and now, which is just about acquisition and accumulation of power and influence. So they each contribute to both, as you would expect. Each has a version of closeness. Each has a version of distance. As I keep saying, every concept you care to name has a left hemisphere take and a right hemisphere take. So it's not, as I say, that they Mm. do different Mm -hmm. things. They do the same things, but they do them always from a coherently different perspective.
0: I see. Coherently different? Because I can imagine yes. they don't
1: cohere. different. Yes. What I'm trying to suggest is within themselves coherent. I see. You I see, see what I, I mean. See. Like a
0: self-consistent.
1: Yes. yes. Yeah. self-consistency. So that, for example, you might say: So, how does the left hemisphere view language? How does the right hemisphere view language? How does the left hemisphere view? distance how does the right hemisphere distance okay they don't sound like they've got very much in common but when you come to look at how each of them looks at everything there are very common threads that are consistent through how the right hemisphere deals with every aspect of existence and very common threads that characterize the way the left hemisphere does so they're not coherent together so much as coherent within themselves but the art of life is bringing these two things to bear in such a way that the richness that they can only really come from them both is not swamped by the left hemisphere trying to take over the whole show it doesn't happen the other way around because the right hemisphere people often say well you you've put your finger on you know what a left hemisphere world looks like because at the end of the book In the last chapter, I sort of describe a world in which the left hemisphere, based on what the reader knows about it, would make of a world. And in reading it, you, I think most people see a very clear portrait of what is happening to us now. So people say, but what would a right hemisphere world look like? The answer is, well, it would be a very balanced one. And there's never been a civilization that didn't have its left hemisphere aspects. Mm -hmm. Because the right hemisphere sees more. It therefore knows that it needs the left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. After all, if it's the the master, it appointed the emissary because it realized it needed the emissary. The emissary coming into existence and being crowned as this, you know, very wise minister thinks it knows everything when it doesn't. And that's the problem. It's people who think they've got it all in the bag. Now, is our consciousness... I, I think... Sorry?
0: Sorry. I was wondering, is our consciousness residing in the left brain or residing in the right hemisphere? Or is it in the interplay between both? Or is it being fed from both? Because as I hear you say, the left thinks it's in charge, it reminds me of our consciousness that thinks we're Mm. the ones that are in control. And then it has, Mm. and then we have to Mm. be confronted with a myriad of psychological studies that show no, you're a monkey on a elephant's back, and you think that you're controlling it, but this elephant's going to go wherever it wants. So are we When I'm speaking with you right now or when Mm. one is speaking with you, are we either engaging in one of those modes or are we primarily on the left or are we both somehow being fed from each?
1: When you start talking about the relationship between consciousness and the brain, then you know you really are in very, very rarefied areas. And I don't shy from talking about it in the book, I have a chapter which is the length of a short book on its own on it. But I think that... You see, let's let's start with the monkey on the elephant. In my experience, the elephant is all that we are not currently aware of, and the monkey is just that foolish little bit that is okay. doing the thinking and talking consciously now. So earlier I said most of everything we are doing is not stuff we are doing consciously. In fact, if we try to do it consciously, we do it very badly. It's one of the interesting things is that the better you get as a chess player the less you think consciously about it right so the same is true of a surgeon or a pilot they have to think a lot to begin with but as they get better they think less and less so the, the role of that monkey is rightly considered not important compared with the elephant, which is wise and has memory. So that's the way I'd look at that. I don't see those images as therefore telling us that we're just the pl- puppets or playthings of something else. I mean, that's a very, very skewed left hemisphere way of thinking about it. because Of course, it's only interested in power and control. But actually what it is, it's saying no. What, what you are is rooted very deeply in the whole of your experience, including the bits that you're now conscious of, but including many that you were conscious of at another moment and aren't now, and things that you were perhaps never conscious of. So anyway, um, and complicatedly, consciousness has two meanings. One is, as against the things you're not aware of, like, oh, um, at that moment I, I wasn't conscious of the fact that it's, you know my friend's birthday or something like that Uh, but it also is used in the sense of what you lose when you go into a coma or die so (laughs) uh, what I'm really saying is there is a kind of consciousness that we find all too obvious and overvalue, which is the one that does the chatting and talking and thinking right now but that what I mean by our conscious awareness of the world is a deep thing that is going on in both hemispheres all the time When we narrow down to the conscious mind, we're talking about that focus of the left hemisphere. An image I sometimes use, I don't know if it's helpful, is that we sometimes think of the unconscious as underneath the conscious, as like a sort of Mm -hmm. a a deep tank that you would come to if you went through the floor of your conscious, the conscious tank. But instead I would...
0: As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the Best Sellers trial pack or or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot slash T-O-E. Thank you, Mosh for sponsoring this video.
1: Think of it as um, a stage that is basically in darkness except where the the floodlight, the spotlight happens to go. And when that moves to a certain place, something suddenly shows up. But when it moves away, that something doesn't go away. It's just that at the moment you're not looking at it, you're looking at something else. So we are a field of consciousness. In fact, Lichtenberg says, and Schelling says, it thinks in me. So as it were, there is a field of me, which is the minus of me and all that goes into that. And it's not something alien from me, it is who I am. And it's out of that that my thinking comes. The Cartesian idea that there must be a little chatty ego for there to be an I helps us forget or miss the true depths of our being. So anyway, when when you do split brain experiments, um, you can interrogate each hemisphere at a time, and each one is conscious. It's just that the right hemisphere can't. In that moment, though, those things. Sorry, mm. sorry,
0: sorry to interrupt because I'm super curious about this. No. Okay, so you have a yes, colisotomy, and then you mm. asked a question, and then you confabulate an answer because you don't know it, or at least the part of you. Yes. Okay, but that's the part of you that is conscious. And it seems like the consciousness Mm. is still in the left and the the right is in control, but it's unconsciously in control, doing a process. So is that Mm. another way of thinking about it? Or can you attribute consciousness to the right hemisphere?
1: Well, I think consciousness is, um, it's not a thing. It is, of course, a process. And indeed, the brain itself is not a thing, but a process. I mean, every cell of your body is a process. It's much more like a process than a thing. Yeah. It looks like a thing because you can photograph it or do a diagram of it, but actually that thing that looks like a cell membrane is actually very fluid and it's changing its position and its composition all the time. So even a single cell is actually a sea of things that are changing and moving and interconnected. Now the brain is like that on an infinitely larger scale.
0: I have a feeling that your new book, this is pretty much what it's talking about, is that there are no things, there are only processes. Is that correct?
1: Uh, It's into it, yes. It's not that I think there's anything wrong with conceiving of things as things. I mean, for example, this laptop on my lap is perfectly properly described as a thing in a certain way. It's just a way in which we encounter the world for certain purposes, a very good one. It's just that on the whole, it's a mistake to think that the world is structured out of things. Anyway, um, when it comes to the consciousness and the brain, I mean, I think of consciousness as being sequestered for a while in a kind of area. Um, and I sometimes think of this as like the outpouching of a membrane. I mean, if people remember looking down slides or down microscopes or seeing slides of um, organic membranes of living tissue, they will often see that they have sort of out pouchings called villi, or or that an amoeba has something called a pseudopod that it can extend and if you're in the middle of one of those those long things you can think you're completely surrounded on all sides but at the foot of it you're connected to the main and I think that our consciousness is quite rightly seems to us um, and it would be no good it being flooded with everything else going on in the universe or nothing original would ever happen. Nothing would be creative. And I keep saying the only way I can explain the cosmos is through a deep creative urge. That's the most I can say of it. And one that probably is connected to to love, which is relationship. Anyway, um, w- what I'm saying is that our consciousness, my consciousness, whatever it is my brain is experiencing as consciousness, is for the moment absolutely connected with my brain. You know, if if I get an injury in the brain to affect the consciousness. And to go back to James's Thing about the vocal cords if he has an injury to the vocal cords his voice will will disappear and so on so it, it, the, but he 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 and his thoughts and his everything that were expressed through mm-hmm. that will carry on i i know it's not an exact analogy another image i i use sometimes is is of the the consciousness in the brain being able to divide and go round an island so that at a certain point in the flow of a stream there may be two seemingly quite distinct streams that don't know much about one another at that moment if you took a but if moved 100 yards down the river you'd see that they came together as they'd been together before and they weren't therefore entirely separate streams although it would be perfectly reasonable to talk of them as separate streams at the time but ultimately they are Connected, and of course, the image of the stream, which is the, the image that um, that, that my all-time favorite philosopher Heraclitus said was at the, the heart of you know all, everything flows, um, it is a brilliant perception because the stream both remains as a stream that passes my house and it will be there tomorrow morning with luck as it is now, but it's also true that it's changing all the time and even changing its boundaries a little and what goes on in it and so forth so
0: i recall you talking about heraclitus and saying that it is both that the stream is the same and that it's you that you don't step in the same river twice it's more like exactly you're it's more like those are two different modes of being with the river or the Absolutely. stream. okay now see that's different than the standard analytical answer would be the Mm. Wittgenstein, which is while you're playing different language games. And so it depends Mm. on what you Mm. mean by so and so. But you're say you've changed it from the analytical to saying, no, no, it depends on how you be. Okay. Yes. Mind outlining that briefly or as lengthily as you like for the audience? (laughs) I think that was incredibly insightful.
1: mm, Well, in a way, it's another way of saying something I said before, which is that it's not either or or both and it's both either or and both and so it is both true that the stream is the same stream and that it is a different stream uh, each of these has a sort of truth and in a either or cast of mind you can go well come on which is it but in another way, you can say it's perfectly coherent that it is both not actually because in some part, as I've just suggested, with an image of an island. Uh, but all the time, uh, <laughs> it is one and the other. And there are many things uh, in in life uh, and in the wider structure of things, it seems to me, that have this dual, not dual quality exactly, but this unwillingness to... S- to finally split it into it's got to be this way or that. In fact, the further you go towards deep things, the more you find that opposites um, come together. And I know I'm hardly the first person to have said that, but it still needs to be said. Is I that mean, why? It still very much needs to be said. Sorry?
0: Is that why you said at one point that the logical mind, while it reinforces itself reinforcing, at its extreme, you would get to the right mind?
1: Well, I think to the extreme, it ought to be able to encounter its own bounds. So, for example, in a way, Gödel demonstrated that a certain kind of entirely logical thinking eventually demonstrates its own limitations. And Pascal said that reason is feeble indeed if it cannot see its own limitations. And don't forget that Pascal was a great mathematician and logician. So, um, I mean, as well as being... Um, a great spiritual thinker. So if you take the left hemisphere thing far enough, it will encounter its own self coming the other way. And and we sometimes see this happening in the world, that if you take a certain point of view far enough, um, if you take um, an intolerant attitude that's dogmatic and cruel on the right, and a a, a similar one on the left, you can hardly tell the difference. It's in the mentality. It's Mm -hmm, in an approach mm -hmm. to the world. Um, And, you know, by going further and further away to the right or the left, you don't avoid the fate that you're trying to avoid. The nemesis will come to you if you insist on having a black and white either or way of thinking. So we must, for our own sakes, get back to seeing that it's a both and world. In which you may have truth on your side, and I may have truth on my side, and we ought to respect one another and talk about it in a grown-up way, not um, vilifying, h- hating, and sh- silencing people, but listening to people who say things different from ourselves. That's so fundamental. It's how our civilization got to have a culture, and now we're throwing it away. Anyway, that, uh, sorry, it, it does distress me very much. This this sudden rise in in the not being shades of meaning. I think it's to do with the way we're educated. I don't think we're taught any longer to think. There's a phrase in Greek, in classical Greek, "men de," and in many of the great philosophers of Greek, they would say, "men on the one hand this, de on the other hand that," and. In a way, that was part of the way I was taught to think that you should see yes as good in that, but there's there's also something else to be said that's you know you need to be aware of. And he, I I I I've in the last year or two come across a couple of Zen sayings that I like very much, and I think I might write a book with one or other title. And one is yes, but, and the other is. Not always so. And that really brings one back into the world of the right hemisphere, because the right hemisphere thinks, yes, but it's the one that always says, uh, yes, but hang on. It inhibits headlong action. It's actually more intelligent. And it literally is a more intelligent hemisphere in the sense that if you have damage to the left hemisphere, damage to the right hemisphere, overall damage to the right hemisphere will drop your IQ more than damage to the left Oh, that's
0: extremely interesting. I know that you can function in the world more adaptively if you have a a left lesion, not the right lesion.
1: You can certainly function more because your emotional intelligence is not impaired and your understanding of human beings is not impaired. But your good old-fashioned... Cognitive intelligence, I, whatever it is IQ measures, is also more highly dependent on the right hemisphere than the left. Um, anyway, there's a study by Barbie et al. in 2013, where they looked at um, 150 people who'd had strokes and had a pre-morbid IQ measurement and looked at their post-morbid IQ measurement. And the and then they put the maps over the top of one another. And where were the really key areas for dropping your intelligence? Hardly any was in the left hemisphere. Interesting. Interesting. Almost all of them were in the right hemisphere, which is not, of course, again, part of that bad old caricature difference between the left and right hemisphere. Well, you know, the right hemisphere is all very well, dear, but it's a bit, you know, kind of mm, not very reliable and it was silent. Not very bright. But yes, but actually, it's both more reliable in the sense of more likely to make the good decision and more intelligent. But anyway, there we go. But let's say about inhibition, because you you, you you said to me earlier on, and then I actually, I really must stop. Yes, I'm enjoying I'm this so conversation so, so much. No, no, bless you. No, I could I could talk to you all day. I, I wish we had time. Um, but I said early on something about inhibition. Well, here's a fascinating thing. First of all, the corpus callosum, which started up, that's the band of fibers that connects the two hemispheres at the base of the brain, started out largely facilitatory. In other words, it was largely um, conveying information from one to the other hemispheres. But it has now come to the point where much of its actual outcome is inhibitory. So much of what it is doing is saying, you keep out of this, you'll confuse the picture, I need to deal with this. And when the mammalian brain evolved from you know the mouse or whatever the shrew up to ourselves if we Mm -hmm. can think of it as a road upwards Mm -hmm. um it involved more and more inhibitory neurons and mammals have more inhibitory neurons primates have more inhibitory neurons than other non-primates and humans have more inhibitory neurons than any other primate and the really important neurons for uh the effectiveness of carving experience coming back to the idea that that as it were like carving a, a statue in this in the stone something only comes into being by the, the the turning away of something else so that the inhibition of the, the discarding mm-hmm. of something mm-hmm. that might have been brings the thing into being. Yeah, i'm gonna I, i'm gonna stop that. yeah sorry because you that. could you could actually keep i mean I, I, I could keep talking to you for ages it's lovely
0: Quick comment on that. I was always wondering if there's a more precise marker of intelligence or sophistication than the encephalization quotient or the brain to body mass ratio. And I was wondering if you can yes. use the inhibitory neurons and the proportion of them. To well, I,
1: I think any of the, any of the known markers uh, has a little to be said for it and quite a lot to be said against right. it. Okay. I and mean, one of the things, again, you know, think about the crow able to solve all kinds of problems, a brain the size of a pea.
0: <laughs> Though birds do have a higher encephalization quotient than us.
1: Well, they have a higher encephalization quotient. That is correct. But nonetheless, the actual <clears throat> number of possible connections is very much smaller, which is probably why they're not uh, building, um, building things that are destroying the world.
0: Okay. This one comes from Sam Ford. Nice one. I'm a big fan of Ian McGillichrist. I think he's perhaps one of the most important thinkers of recent times. He cites Jung a few times in The Master and His Emissary and mentioned Jung in his first talk with Peterson. I've always wondered how well he thinks Jung's ideas about the different aspects of the psyche map onto his own. He gives a little postamble. It seems to me that maybe the persona slash ego and the left hemisphere may match up to some degree and that the unknown greater personality of self matches up to the union of the left and the right hemispheres, maybe? Either way, I would mm-hmm. like to know his ideas on how Jung matches up with his.
1: Well, that's a, a very nice question and a good one. Um, I have to say right away that I've not really made any systematic study of Jung. Uh, I read um, Modern Man in Search of a Soul when I was a teenager, and it struck me as a very important and powerful book. And since then, I've uh, I've read bits and pieces here and there. So I don't really, I wouldn't say I'm a paid-up Jungian or anything like that. Although I do find that uh, Jungians, like Buddhists, and I'm also not a Buddhist, <laughs> although I have great sympathy with both Jungians and Buddhists, um, th- they seem to come to my, um, my talks and write to me. So obviously, f- in their probably better informed minds, um whatever it is i'm saying has resonances and i'm always interested in those i think the the key thing about jung for me uh, i can't really talk definitively about things like the you know the ego and the animus and the anima and all these things but but i can say that his general world picture is very sympathetic uh from my point of view and one of the most important points which is something that he shared with Goethe um, w- w- was this sense that opposites uh, come together, and I, that's something that I do strongly believe, as I, I've said earlier when we were talking about that. Um, so, Yeah, but I, I'm afraid I'm not really in a position to, it's slightly like the Freudian question you asked about, you know, can we line up the id and the ego and the superego with, I think to an extent you can, but, and I'm sure that, you know, it's possible to make good analogies um, between Jung's uh, work, which I don't, you know, as I say, I don't know the detail of. Um, I, I've always thought of him as a very um, sympathetic soul, basically. Um, so I'm afraid I, I'm going to have to disappoint some there. Um, but the thing that interests me, though, is, you know, that although... You see looking back over history there are so many people who uh, long before even Freud and Jung and who knew even less about the structure of the brain than they did have posited something very like what I am think I've discovered and I'm promulgating from the basis of modern neuroscience. It's very exciting that in a way these these great archetypes, these images from wise minds in the past. Uh, they they had intuitive understanding of something that can now be more objectively demonstrated.
0: You mentioned once in your book about the Greeks that they had some intimation about the left and the right hemisphere. Either one is for, I think, perception and the other one was for understanding.
1: That's right. Yes, and, and it's fascinating. Um, that so long ago people were speculating on the, the, the um, the uses of the two parts of the brain. I mean, what one has to remember is that in in Galen, who was, you know, one of the first great physicians, he thought that the brain was actually a kind of um, air conditioning system. He thought that it it helped the the person lose excessive heat. So clearly they were a very long way off modern science. But I I do cite and footnote the sources for, I think they were 3rd century A.D., suggestions that the right hemisphere is perception and the left for understanding now unfortunately it's actually true that the right hemisphere is better at both perceiving and understanding but one sort of knows what was being got at the right hemisphere is definitely better at perception and at the sort of taking of things as reality rather than um having an idea about them in the way that the left hemisphere has so you know it is that is also remarkable thank you for reminding me
0: Well, thank you for pointing it out. I make extensive notes. <laughs> okay. That's another reason when I was telling you before that this podcast is killing me in many ways. In one way, in a salutary manner, hopefully. In in one way, it's destabilizing. In another, it takes so much preparation. And hopefully the preparation shows in the questions. And um, sometimes I read the comments and often they indicate that they do. But I always wonder how much am I overextending myself.
1: No, no. Well, look. I mean, uh, let, let me say quite genuinely that you do. Your your questions are some of the best. Um, they they target very important areas. And no, I think you're. You know, from that point of view, you're one of the best interviewers that I've I've come across. So thank you.
0: Well, okay. Well, thank you, thank you, man. It makes me blush. I'm brown. You can't tell, but but I am blushing. <laughs> Okay, Joanne Dong says, can you ask McGillichrist about the substitution effect from psychology and its impact on the imbalance between the right and the left hemispheres over the course of Western civilization? Daniel Kahneman states, in thinking fast and slow, when faced with a difficult question, we often answer an easier one instead, without noticing the substitution.
1: Thank you. Mm. Well, yes. Uh well, first of all, let me say about uh, Daniel Kahneman and and the hemisphere hypothesis. Uh, it would be wrong to suppose that when he talks about thinking fast and slow, he's talking about the two hemispheres um, in a conversation that we had. Uh, he confirmed my impression that he's talking about more top brain versus bottom brain than right versus left. So the frontal cortex of both hemispheres taking more time, being more thorough, and the posterior cortex of both hemispheres being more likely to be um, jumping to conclusions or going for the familiar. However, having said that, your questioner does touch on something very interesting because research shows that the the, the left hemisphere jumps to conclusions and tends to see what it wants to see in what is being presented or what is being asked. It will actually ignore, or just not hear or just not see, things that invoke something that it's not interested in or not aware of. So in that sense, uh, our tendency to give a fast answer to something we can answer rather than a slower, more thoughtful answer to something that would be would require deeper reflection. That is a left-right distinction. So the left hemisphere being the more superficial and quick and dirty hemisphere on this and the right hemisphere having um, more of a capacity to see several sides to something to think more carefully about it and to inhibit the immediate response of the left hemisphere.
0: Okay. C. Ren Dudley, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, says, by positing an absolute division between the brain hemispheres, aren't we already thereby engaged in wholly left brain thinking? In other words, isn't the notion of different sides, quote-unquote, confined to only one side of the brain, namely the left?
1: Yes, I, I mean, sorry. The answer to that question is no. Um, <laughs> uh, I I have talked about this quite a bit. I certainly addressed it in the in the uh, in the new introduction to the Master and His Emissary, the new new edition that came out a year or so ago. But I I do also address it in in the Matter with Things. Um, there's a sort of sense that you know you're dichotomizing, aren't you? People sort of say that. But um, I remember your exact uh, line about this
0: because, sorry to interrupt, for the people listening, mm. the preface alone of The Master and Its Emissary is already one of my favorite books of the past few years. The (laughs) preface alone. I remember listening to the preface. I had to listen to it because I I was driving and so on. So the preface alone had me pausing so often and thinking. And I'm just wondering, how the heck is Ian coming up with this? Anyway, if you buy the <laughs> well, book by the way and you can uh, sh- only read the preface, do so. <laughs> I
1: would I would point out that there is the, the preface I'm talking about is for the, the new version right, right, two thousand and nineteen right. onwards. It has a a green cover. So if your version doesn't have the green cover, then that doesn't have the preface. But it's very nice that you say that because actually somebody sent me a very nice email saying, Man, I've just read your preface. And you know, it's worth buying the book just for that. Mm-hmm. So it's almost Absolutely. exactly what you said. Yeah, it's so, a great So But I try, I, try to in, I try to encapsulate, you know, some of the, the questions and, and answers there. But, you know, in life there are things that are false dichotomies and there are some that are genuine dichotomies, even if there is a degree of overlap so for example you know um, bad drivers versus good drivers that's a false dichotomy I mean it's a matter of degree and it's all on the spectrum Uh, and then you could take um, some other things like um, being a tree or being an animal you know Um, there is a kind of pond life that's very hard to say whether it's actually a a, a plant or an animal, but nonetheless, on the whole, we can tell the difference between an elephant and a tree, and and this is the, the this is a perfectly good dichotomy, if you like. So, w- what I would say about this, the divide between the brain is that I always start off very early in any book I'm talking about it. I say, yeah, there is a certain degree of overlap that's necessary and important, but nonetheless. Um, don 't reject the fact that there are very startling differences just because you have to have you happen to think that dichotomies are impossible it's you know dichotomies can be simple, but it can also be simplistic to reject a dichotomy if there is one, and in this case, there is one and uh, Let me just repeat because people don 't find this easy to take in there is overlap there is overlap, and an example I give is. Um, between the culture and climate of Iceland and Indonesia, okay? So uh, Iceland's a very cold country, uh, and its landscape, its vegetation, even the, the the kind of temperament of the people is bound to have been molded by its its climate. Indonesia has a different climate, a much warmer, more humid climate, And again, the vegetation and the history and the culture and even probably the temperament is different. But it is still true that the hottest year ever recorded, the annual average temperature in Iceland, was higher than the lowest average temperature for the year ever recorded in Indonesia. So it's perfectly possible for there to be overlap in things that are radically different. So... I'm sorry, the questioner gets a no from me on that one.
0: (laughs) All right. Actually, that line, it's burned into my memory. The line is, people don't like dichotomies because they say dichotomies are simplistic, but it's also simplistic to dismiss something just because it's a dichotomy. Now that one, I'm going to take, I will credit you, don't worry, but I'm doing interviews. (laughs) I'm being interviewed because I'm putting out a film soon on the extreme left, what makes the extreme left extreme, on the political spectrum, right? Not because I'm a right winger. In fact, I'm apolitical. Oh. But because it's it's difficult mm. to analyze what's extremism on the left. Extremism on the right is just mm. it's, it's blatant. Anyway, I well, I think I may extremism use that
1: on the left is is also blatant. But and they, as I said earlier on when we were talking, they have an enormous amount in common. At right. Way, exactly.
0: Exactly. So that's why I was yeah. like, okay, that's yeah. the horseshoe yeah. theory, I believe in a nutshell. And that's interesting because Mm. the further you run away from a point, the closer you get to it after a certain location. So it's like a circle.
1: right? In some cases that is absolutely true, yeah.
0: Maybe you want to quickly comment. This is something I was thinking about as I was reading your book is, is there a way of mapping the hemisphere differences to left, right onto our left, right spectrum? Maybe it's inverted, like the right brain is the left and the, and the reason I was thinking about this is because while the French revolution is posed as a left phenomenon. And they espoused rationality and so on, but that's a left brain. But then, on the other hand, they loved Rousseauian thinking, which Mm. seems to me to be more romantic, which is right-brained. So there's many contradictions I see, and I couldn't map them on directly. And I was wondering if you had any experience or thought about this much. uh,
1: Well, uh, to come back to the previous question, this is a case where it would be simplistic. So um, any culture is a mixture of many things. And what I say about this is easily to identify right hemisphere style thinkers on the right and on the left, and left hemisphere style thinkers on the right and on the left. So that you get thinkers that are dogmatic, uncharitable, um, angry, Mr. Right knows what's good for people. You know, that is your left hemisphere type, and there's plenty of them on the left, just as there are on the right. And there are thoughtful, flexible, compassionate people who don't treat people as belonging to boxes or categories or ticking something, but are actually complicated human individuals with many many facets to their their experience to their personality now that that exists on both sides so uh, (laughs) it's quite coherent i think to say that no it doesn't map on to right and left in politics at all in fact in some ways you know the interesting thing is if, if anything the left hemisphere is much more theoretical and the right hemisphere is much more interested in experience. And one way of thinking about the divide between the political spectrum is that the left end of it tends to prioritize theories over the experience of history of culture whereas the right wing or the writer wing of, of thinking tends to be very interested in history and culture and context and embodiment, not in a theory that on paper looks like it's going to make everybody happy. So (laughs) I think there is an argument that if you had to put it either way, I would associate the right spectrum with the right hemisphere and the left spectrum, particularly the extreme left, with the left hemisphere. Interesting. But but as I say, I don't think that you can make a, a clean mapping, no.
0: Right. Nietzsche, to me, was paradoxical because he repudiated rationality, so then that, to me, puts him on the right hemisphere, as well as loved the passions. But then at the same time, mm. had the will to power as his primal motive, at least toward the mm. end of his life. Mm. So then that's the left. Okay, Daigo Pinto well, says... Can
1: I just say something Yes, a- sure. quickly sure. about that? Yeah. Um, I do want to get away from the idea that somehow reason is uh, associated with the left hemisphere and emotion with the right. Reason is associated with both hemispheres and so is emotion. They are both capable of being emotional. The left is actually more intemperate, less inhibited when it gets emotional. And the right hemisphere plays a very important part in reason, which is the coming together of thoughtful reflection on experience and even in some kinds of logic it is actually superior to the left so it's a very complex picture.
0: This is a good point for you to delineate the difference between rationality and reason because I just use the word rationality and I often conflate it with reason as well but in your Mm. book you do Mm. give I think you cite the newest for reason.
1: (laughs) Well I it struck me that in most languages, rather as we don't differentiate between Wissen and Kennen, we just have one word to know, we also don't, like many other languages, have a different term for a sort of isolated, abstracted form formulation of rational processes in the sense that a computer could be programmed to carry them out. And reason, which is often in conflict with that, being reasonable means taking into account rationality, but also taking into account what one knows wisely from experience and from living. And in German there's a distinction between Verstand, which is more like this um, uh, rather abstract theoretical reason, and Vernunft, which is a kind of quality that you get from being wise and living, which means you're able to reason but do so as a wise judge in a court would do. I mean, a a judge in a court shouldn't really be just applying rules in a computer-like way, but should be thinking contextually, and that is what we used to mean by reason. And that's what we used to think was the flower of education, that the reason for educating people was that they could think in this very balanced, flexible way, taking many sides of things into account. But in our world today, where everything is very much skewed towards the left hemisphere, we tend to think of reason as like a kind of rote rationality. And I, I think that's a huge loss. So, yeah. You mentioned the
0: judge, and that reminds me, I had a speculative question, or speculative thought, Mm. about Jesus, who had an emphasis on the spirit of the text versus the text, and one is in keeping with God, and the other is pharisaical, it's a literal interpretation. And Jesus said, you keep with God, you take the spirit, and that to me was more Mm. right-brained. And then I wondered, does that mean there's a theological argument for the primacy of the right hemisphere?
1: (laughs) Well, there is, actually, and I make it. Um in the matter with things but it's it's a long argument and it's a it needs to reflect on many 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 things but
0: i can't wait to read that book man <laughs>
1: <laughs> but what i would just say is there's an interesting you know how um my vision is that the left hemisphere is either or but the right hemisphere is sort of both and Well, the left hemisphere tends to be very given to the letter of the law, as you hinted. But the right hemisphere is able to see that sometimes the letter of the law needs to be respected as well as the kind of spirit of the law. Because the spirit of the law is generally what one wants to find, not the letter of it. But if a person has relied on the letter of the law, because that's what it says then they ought to be given some protection under law because they did abide by what the letter of the law said. They might find themselves still open to the criticism that they didn't understand the spirit of it. But I think that a wise judge would take both into account, and it's not necessarily one way or the other that they would. I think they depend. their judgment would depend on the circumstances and the person and the case before them.
0: I know I want to get to Daigo's question, but you just said, "I, I, please, I have to interject with one thought. Pascal, in your book, you mentioned that he had a quotation about the whole point of reason. I believe it was reason, not rationality, but let's imagine it's reason. That the whole point of reason is to realize that there's an infinitude of more important aspects to life than reason. And then I was wondering, well, what does one say to the retort that when giving an, when giving a reason to not use reason, you're still appealing to reason. So it's somewhat self-defeating. How do you get
1: out of that? Um, I didn't quite catch the meaning of your last okay. remark. Okay, let's there. say
0: you're giving, let's say you're explaining to someone, here's why you shouldn't use reason alone, or if it's mm. rationality alone. But either way, you're giving oh, a I rational see. argument it, or yes, you're giving a reason yes. to.
1: Well, there are different levels of reason. Um, there's a kind of meta-level of reason. And I think the meta-level, the overarching view that takes in both, is usually the one I would say is best associated, more likely to be associated with the working of the right hemisphere. And so, as I say, the right hemisphere is no stranger to reason, absolutely not. Um, And it would be a big mistake to say that it in any way rejected it, but it's more likely to see the limits of it because it's... (laughs) it's able to stand outside of its own viewpoint and see there are things that it doesn't know which the left hemisphere is very bad at doing so it thinks I've got this schema which will solve all my problems I run them through this mental computer and a solution comes out which is the right answer and the right hemisphere can say no there could be many right answers that that are not you know they're not necessarily compatible with one another but they might apply in different circumstances at different times with different people so To see a more nuanced and um, more complex picture, I think the right hemisphere is the the one that would be using elements of reason, and there's nothing wrong with reason in itself, to show the limits of reason. This is really what Pascal was saying, and and you've just demonstrated that 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 is okay. He made a distinction between what he called géomètres, geometers, and esprit fin, Fine spirits, and he says the fine spirits. It, by the word fine, he means subtle. So the subtle spirit is different from the slightly bull in the china shop, black and white, hard and fast, inflexible, geometric spirit. In which he's saying, you know, you 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 turn away, you do a diagram, and you've you've got the answer. Whereas the the esprit fin, he says. Can see things, understand things that can hardly be put into words, but are very, very important. Now, coming from a mathematician, that is a very, and a very great mathematician, that's a very important thing to hear. Is this related to,
0: at one point in the book, you referenced that we need to transcend utility? And I always wondered, well, tongue in cheek, what's the use of that? But <laughs> also, how does one transcend utility? Is this related to it, or is it not related to it? Or is it all related? Because at some point, Everything's related.
1: Well, no, no, it is. It is uh, related, Kurt. But uh, in the... I don't know whether you've got to a chapter where I talk about Scheler's Pyramid of Values. Uh, Scheler was a, um, a contemporary of, of Heide, Heidegger's but died much younger, whom Heidegger called the greatest philosopher in Europe of his age. And he he focused on values more than Heidegger. And he added a hierarchy of values, which at the bottom is things that are merely useful or pleasurable, the sort of things that actually any animal would, would go for. And then there are the are higher values that transcend those of pure utility. And I think those are the very important values that render us moral beings and give our lives meaning, and that just to be following utility and pleasure is self-defeating. In fact, by doing it very much more than any previous civilization has ever done, we are endangering our very existence as a civilization. We're just grabbing things as they're useful, taking courses of action because they're easy and pleasurable, whereas when a civilization is at its height, it inculcates a spirit of self-denial to a point, of you know, a certain degree of, of bravery, of courage, of... Uh, humility of uh, you know uh, moral um, consideration of the value of others and that this is not the way that we now think
0: I'm assuming then when you use the term utility you mean in a short term or short-sighted or self-centered manner because yes we could always say that we could always reposition utility to be utility for God so that if As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful, Addition to my day, post workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mm. how's the flavor? Mm. it's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to MoshLife.com/toe to save twenty percent off plus free shipping on either the bestsellers trial pack. Or the new plant-based trial pack—that's twenty percent off, plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack—at m o s h l i f e dot com slash t o e. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. If we're acting in accordance with our morals, then that's useful for the group yes, but, as the whole.
1: But that would be a terribly debased way of thinking about um, one's attitude to God. It's rather like the old argument that if you believe that you will go to heaven if you're good, then you're just really basically pursuing a good for yourself. But that is really to (laughs) completely stand on its head. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't people who can be motivated wrongly in this way. I'm sure there there, there are and, and were. But I'm really saying that a true understanding of morality excludes the idea that you're moral simply in order to get a benefit for yourself. I mean, that's not morality. That is a kind of, yes, a kind of selfishness. And and it's what we mean by hypocrisy, you know, where people say things and do things in order to look good and, you know, um, sound like they're something that they're not.
0: Okay. Daigle Pinto (laughs) says, His book, The Master and His Emissary, is one of my favorite books about the brain. If you could sneak in one of these questions, I'd be appreciated. He has five Sorry, he has four. I'm gonna briefly outline them and then you can answer one or two if you like. Okay. 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 So he says a section on the book that deals with evolution of the solid self, though he uses in brackets that I'm using these words on my own here. I'm not he didn't use these words, mm. that there would be a non-unified voice or several in an individual, which could be interpreted as an outside other being. And then you make reference to Moses and the ancient Greeks or and so on as hearing God's voice as an example. He mm. said could he elaborate on this and point out other sources on the topic? That's number one. Okay, so mm. save that. Maybe you want to respond to that. He Number two. He mentions that language and the music have a common ancestry, and then gives some evidence for the claim, and I'd like to hear if he's learned anything new since the publication of his book. There's that. Okay, so that's the other voices, language and music. Then, what are his thoughts, if any, on Chomsky versus Lakoff's ideas about language? That's number three. And then number four. Mm. What does he think about objective truth? Can we apprehend it? Pretty much just that. Well... Okay. Okay, Okay, so again, to briefly briefly outline, the God and the other voices that are internal, but perceived as such. Number two is language and music, and then Chomsky, and then objective truth.
1: Well, I think the first two I have covered either in what I've said or in the book, actually, to some extent. But the last two are both very big questions. Um and to me, more interesting ones. I very much think, like Lakoff and Johnson, about language. And I find Chomsky's views, I may simply not have given them the credit that's due to them, of course. Um, But I, I find them less attractive, because they seem more um schematic more programmatic more like the there is a sort of software in the hardware that does certain things whereas i'm a great believer in what one might call the power of imitation in humans and i spend quite a lot of time on the fact that humans are particularly good at imitating um not not just um, copying but actually imitating and getting into the skin of another creature or another person and feeling something about how they are and why they are doing and saying what they're doing. So I think language grows in this way, as I've I've said, from a sort of a a, a basic sense that is embodied, profoundly embodied in, in, in movement, in the voice, in in music in the voice and the the business of breath and that it is not really a, a an abstract code uh, it can become that uh, but it actually i don't know that chomsky gives enough credit to the way in which language is constantly um metaphorizing embodied experience and lakoff and johnson very much do show how every Everything we say has a reference that is understandable in terms of the body. And we can't get deeper than that, in a way, than our embodied experience. Um, It's it's where, as Wittgenstein said, I hit bedrock and my spade is turned. You know, one can't dig down any further, but it's from there that that language comes. And I've got time just to say a little bit about the objective thing. Do I believe there's objective truth? Annoyingly, I'm going to, uh, yeah, I'm going to say yes and no, um, and I think we do. Yes, we do to a degree have access to it. Um, I, I think it, very importantly that, like many other things, it's a journey as it were, not an arrival. I mean, it's not something we get and then we have it. It's a cast of mind or a disposition for exploring life and the world, which enables one to have more solid. Uh, grounds for believing what one believes, so um, I absolutely repudiate the idea that, which is, a, you know, a, a devastatingly destructive idea and a very silly one, that anything that anybody says is equally true because there's no criterion by which to judge it. Um, it's almost beneath rebuttal but it's so obviously wrong you know if I believe that uh, as as SoCal says that you that I can walk out of the 22nd window of my apartment 22nd floor window of my apartment and survive on landing I'm wrong um, or very likely to be so um, on the other hand it's not at all true that there's a, a single truth that is the truth because all truths are contextual, and that doesn't mean that every context renders it completely different. There are trends, and for me the important thing is to see that the path to truth is not a line, but a matter of circling or spiraling. So the important thing is not to say, I've taken this step, now the next logical step is this, and at the end of the road there will be truth. You might even say, well I know I'll never get there, that's true, but you know, at least I can see exactly where I'm going. But I'm not sure that truth is of this kind. I think truth is of the kind where you you look at something from as many different viewpoints as you can. And when you hear somebody say something else about it, you don't just rule it out and you know dismiss it. You think, now let me search for what's the truth in that, because there are aspects of truth in it. And I sometimes quote Dunn on this, the poet John Dunn, 17th century English Poet one of our great poets who who says words to the effect that truth is like a castle that stands on a steep and cragged hill and who wants to arrive at it doesn't go straight up but has to circle round the hill to get there and that image is a very useful one to bear in mind. in fact, I return to the image of the spiral path in which it's not exactly a circle, which means that you just end up where you were when you when you when you when you get round the circle, but actually a spiral whereby you are you you come to somewhere like where you were before, but the view is now different. A little bit like T. S. Eliot's famous thing about arriving where we started from but knowing it for the first time. And and so I think life is a series of these things. And the path to objective truth is to commit yourself to this process of spiraling around and learning as much as you can about it and knowing you'll never get the absolute truth but that you can get much much closer to truth and that matters very much so truth matters and it is not the case that you know well i just see it differently so my truth's as good as yours your truth may be as good as mine it may be better than mine but it may equally by the same token be worse so you know there is meaning to this idea uh, a very important meaning to it and I do find earphones very funny I don't know there's something about my ears but they always keep flopping out um, anyway there we are um,
0: that's that thank you that's sir that. I appreciate <laughs> it
1: okay.
0: you should read well, a, just as we go you should read this book by Douglas Hofstetter your, your chapter on imitation reminded me of it it's called Surfaces and Essences it's about analogy
1: okay uh, is that in the mind's eye, or is what is that? In? No, no, no. He, it's its own own book. It's a
0: huge book, just about how analogy is the core of cognition.
1: It even is. the fact that
0: when we imitate, see, he don't, I don't believe he uses the word memes, but Susan Blackwell even points this out that Blackmore points it out that mm. to imitate is extremely complex.
1: To copy is rote, but to imitate is yes. complex. You have it to take is. the
0: essence of it.
1: Yes, no, that is exactly right. And what's also nice about it is that, again, the right hemisphere is better at this business of getting into the skin of somebody else and understanding the complexity of it. But it is also the one that thinks that understanding is analogy. So that these, when I talked about mathematicians and scientists having a sense of a form, and and then finding that through a, a, a revelation or intuitional insight, they saw the solution to a problem. That was by analogy, not by going, well, I'm nine-tenths of the way there down this path, and if I just do a few more pages of work, I'll have reached it. Nothing is an understanding in that way. We don't just gradually work our way along a line. We, we have to see and feel analogies and this is how Einstein described his own discoveries, that he would play a piece of music and he would ponder about it, and then he'd get up from the piano and go, I've got it. And, or at least his, his daughter, I think, describes him in, the, in this way. So, uh, and he always said, you know, that I don't think in words, I think in musical forms and muscular movements. Well, <laughs> how remarkable is that? So anyway, we, we've, we've talked an awful lot. Um, have and a I'm great sure day, can, man,
0: have a drink. Get some rest. while for you, I don't know what time it is. I got the Chomsky interview, so it's I've just a little that. early
1: for a drink for me. But I'll get onto it in due course and drink to your your very great health. And I look forward to talking again, perhaps in a year when you've had a chance yes. to take a look at the matter with things. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. I I, oh, I keep wanting to
1: call you professor. I was surprised that you weren't a professor because the the
0: corpus of your <laughs> of of master and its emissaries. It's a huge intellectual achievement.
1: Well, I'm a maverick, and um, uh, Jung and Freud were um, doctors. Uh, I'm a doctor. I like that. True, Um, true, 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 true. My (laughs) wife liked the advice that you said about
0: me taking some time off and having a break, so we're likely going to do that after the Chomsky interview. Okay, have a great one. Very,
1: very good.
0: I want the audience to look up, okay, first of all, where can they find out more about you?
1: uh the best place to go is um com, uh which you can just put in a, as an a url or you can google the my name it will automatically it will ma- automatically come up um the main book of my thinking is the one that you referred to but in the next few months i'm publishing a very large book which is my attempt to explain why the whole way we think about ourselves nature the cosmos and reality is mistaken and it's based heavily on the hemisphere hypothesis Um, and i think it shows a way in which we could go forward in the world and flourish and survive rather than come to um, a disastrous end so there we are Thank I'd love to so talk much. to you again one day, but right yeah, now I'm going to go and have a drink. <laughs> okay, go ahead.
0: Go have a drink. At some point, I, I did want to ask you about cognitive behavioral <laughs> therapy for what I was going through, but what I am going through. Like, I want to know should I just be out in nature more? Should I listen to more music? I, I'm definitely going to stop or try my best to stop being so self conscious and, and let's say, left brain. I think,
1: I think being able to be mindful, being out in nature, listening to music slowing down and doing precisely what your left hemisphere is telling you you mustn't do, which is waste time, would be a terribly good idea. I mean, I think that's such a destructive idea that time is a resource. It's a typical left hemisphere idea that time is money, as Jeremy Bentham, a man with no right hemisphere detectable um, to the human eye, uh, said. And it's this idea that we husband time as material and the more we do that the less time we have the more hurried we are the less we inhabit the world at all and then we die so i think it's a very good idea to slow down and to learn to listen and not to be too active i mean i don't always take my own advice i have to say
0: (laughs) yeah well you're i don't know how you were able to do that I, i i have no idea how you were able to come up with that book it you know 14 years sounds like quite a long time but as i I've done my own research. I feel like in 14 years, I would have come up with 20% of what you came up with. So that's a tour de force, man.
1: Well, I sometimes think the mice came in the night and wrote it for me.
0: Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Please get some rest. Have a drink. I I feel like in many (laughs) ways, this podcast is killing me because I planned. So I have so many pages here. I go through such lengths to for each guest but we can
1: hey we can do this again
0: if you don't mind i would i would love to i don't want to you're too kind i'll
1: tell you what yeah no no look what about we do it again in say a year's time my book will have come out you can have a look at it and we can we'll have another go that would be great yeah great
0: great okay where are
1: you by the way are you in la or what? i'm in toronto toronto ah yes that's right because yes because you said i i attended the the mm-hmm. first sharing of the film which and that was the one in toronto <laughs> mm-hmm. somebody had some sound engineer got a very red face afterwards <laughs> yeah
0: yeah that's right we could barely hear you and i think peterson had to talk to I you over uh, a phone
1: i know <laughs> all right then lovely to have been one. your guest thank oh, you very much we'll meet again it was a pleasure, it was a okay. pleasure man.
0: thank you i honestly mean it like your book is life-changing at least for me and i think uh, slowly it's going to dawn on me your the realizations that you've just incepted or implanted thank you
1: thank you very much hopefully
0: it's not too destabilizing for me well all the very best have a great one thank you okay i'll try and be more embodied i'll try my best because i don't i definitely don't want to hear voices okay have a great one man all right thank you